for July 7, 2021. This is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. As we previewed in the past two episodes, we're taking a break during the month of July from our usual rhythm of producing new shows. We're doing it to give me a little slack while I execute a move out of my home and shift to a nomadic lifestyle, and also just to give all of us here at the Energy Transition Show a little breather for the first time in five and a half years after launching over 150 episodes without interruption every other week. But rather than just leave our loyal subscribers with nothing to listen to in July, Energy Transition Show producer Justin Ritchie has put together a nearly three-hour compilation of material that was previously available only to our paid subscribers. These excerpts are from five of our most popular shows from the past two years. So if you're not yet a subscriber and you've been wondering what you're missing, here's a taste of it. And if you are one of our full subscribers, then this episode is a great way to revisit some of our best content. And when we resume our regular show launch schedule in August, it will be with a refreshed theme and some exciting new features on our website, so you have that to look forward to. Because this is a compilation of previously released material, our format today is a little different from the usual Energy Transition Show episodes. You won't hear the customary preambles, postscripts, or news segments, just five juicy bits of conversation from our back catalog that our listeners liked the most. And now, Volume 1 of the Best of the Energy Transition Show. And we will be back, refreshed and reinvigorated, in August. See you then. Part 1. This is an excerpt from Episode 112, in which we talk with Glenn Peters, a researcher on carbon emission scenarios, who has contributed work on emission trends for the UN and for the IPCC climate assessments. In this segment, we discuss the meaning of the emission scenarios used in climate science and the information they can communicate about what the energy transition will need to accomplish to meet our climate targets. A few weeks ago, the UN released its Emissions Gap Report 2019, which asserts that global temperatures are on pace to rise by 3.2 degrees C by the end of the century, with attendant apocalyptic predictions about the consequences of that much warming. So I would definitely question the assumptions on that finding, or at least wonder if it's because that paper was focused on the effects of all greenhouse gases and not just CO2 emissions from burning fossil fuels. So maybe the effects of all the greenhouse gases are considered to be much worse than just the effects of CO2. It also issued some stern warnings for the world's nations that they would need to increase their pledges under the Paris Agreement fivefold to limit warming to 1.5 degrees, which, okay, fair enough, I think we're close enough to that target already that I'd give a little more confidence to that estimate. But it also said that to limit warming to 2 degrees, emissions in 2030 would need to be 25% lower than they were in 2018, which also frankly seems pretty doable to me given the trajectory and the acceleration that I'm seeing in energy transition efforts globally. So what was your take on that UN report? Yeah, I have to confess, I was an author. Oh, good. Well, we got the right guy to answer the question. (laughs) (laughs) But I was an author in a chapter on emission trends, but, you know, involved in the process and some of the discussions around the framing of the results, actually, which is something that was very interesting with this year's release. So I don't know if the number 7.6%, does that stick in your head? No, it didn't. Okay, because they use this term, you have to reduce emissions by 7.6% per year, which got a lot of headlines and a lot of people just keep referring to this 7.6. It was an interesting communication strategy, Hmm. whether deliberate or just luck, I don't know, but Hmm. it was in hindsight, it worked. I'm going a bit off track here. (laughs) So the emissions gap report is in terms of baselines, it's quite low on the baseline. So it has a current policies and also pathways consistent with the emission pledges that countries submitted to the Paris Agreement. 
bit of a mouthful, but these are both quite a bit lower than, for example, RCP 8.5. And then you need this five-fold reduction. So they're saying, you know, as you said, that current policies, if you continue them through to the end of the century, so they have some definition for how they model policies from 2030 out to 2100 based on what the policies are between 2020 and 2030, they say you get 3.2 degrees. But this is in a technical term what they call 66% chance below 3.2 degrees, which is a part of a probability distribution. Mm -hmm. If you look at the median, I'm not sure exactly what the number is, but it's, I think, a little bit below 3 degrees. Okay. If you look at the emission pledges, I think it's just a touch lower again. A very similar paper by many of the same authors a couple of years ago put these emission pledges to the Paris Agreement, the NDCs, for those that know that horrible acronym. That'll put us on 2.7 degrees or so by the end of the century. So this is good news, right? We're doing pretty much bugger all in terms of climate policy. There's only a few countries around the world that really have meaningful climate policies. And given that, we still are potentially on for 2.7 degrees at the end of the century. So then it shouldn't be that hard taking this framing to get down to, let's say, 2.5 degrees, then 2.2 degrees, and then 2 degrees. Right. And this comes back to a problem with this framing of baselines. You know, when you frame the baseline as 5 degrees and we're going to die in 2100, right. then getting to 2 degrees sounds impossible. I don't care. I don't bother. I just stay at home and watch TV. Whereas if you say our current weak efforts are getting us to 2.7 degrees at the end of the century, so if we try just a little bit, <laughs> then we could get close to two degrees. So that's a very different framing, and I think that framing should be used a lot more in my view. It also comes back a little bit to this Michael Lybrick discussion about RCP 8.5 you know, those interested in the energy transition might frame the problem very differently to those interested in climate impacts. Yeah, for sure. I mean, in all the coverage and the discussion that I saw about the UN paper, now that you mentioned it, I did see that 7.6 number batted around. Nobody talked about, hey, this paper says we're actually pretty close to being within shooting distance of two degrees. Right. So it's all the focuses around this gap in 2030 where we've got to reduce the emissions an extra, well, as you said, for two degrees, 25% by 2030 or something like that, mm. which, you know, in a cost-optimal pathway is true. And when you compare to, a you know, in quotes, a cost-optimal pathway, another piece of the puzzle, which we not really mentioned, but if you want to stabilize the temperature just say at 2.5 degrees or at 3 degrees or at 2 degrees, it doesn't matter. If you want to stabilize temperature, the temperature to stop rising, you have to have zero emissions. And so, you know, however fast you go, at some stage you have to be zero or less where you have negative emissions. And that could be the killer. So you could get down to 2.5 degrees just to pick that number without too much effort, but then the temperature might slowly keep rising over time. So to stop the temperature rising, you still have to get to zero. So maybe we can get 80% of the way or 50% of the way. We can argue about what that percentage is without, in quotes, too much effort. But that last little bit could be the hardest bit. But then that's in 50 years' time. So we've got 50 years to figure out how we're going to solve that problem. <laughs> but we can certainly, as you mentioned, 
probably without too much effort, get emissions down 25% in 2030, for example. So this point about emissions having to get to zero by 2030 or whatever your number is for your scenario, that assumes some things that I think has never really been clear to me especially given the fact that the Earth does have a certain amount of absorption capacity. So there's always running underneath you an absorption effect. So why do emissions have to get to zero? Yeah, so there's been some interesting Twitter discussions on this one as well. Yeah. So to summarize it, and this is another good thing about Twitter, I've sort of learned how I can sort of explain it in 280 characters, I think. It is a helpful way to get you to refine your message, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. So if you stop emitting CO2, the CO2 in the atmosphere will slowly start to decrease. It won't go all the way to zero, but it will start to decrease. But that is offset by, in quotes, the warming in the pipeline. So people might have heard of that term, which is the slow processes in the ocean, what takes time for the warming to take effect. So it's sort of interesting that you have this CO2 concentration falling, the warming in the pipeline, slow ocean processes, warming the Earth system, basically happening at the same rate in the opposite direction. And this is primarily the mechanism that leads to zero CO2 emissions zero temperature change, then this is the concept behind carbon budgets and so on and so forth. One of my projects in 2020 is to write a nice short blog post which explains this, so even I understand it. (laughs) (laughs) So now I have to bring this back to my original point, the one we discussed with Justin back in episode 49 and Boss in episode 51, which was that none of this seems even remotely plausible to me given my understanding of what's already happening in the world right now, which is that global coal consumption peaked seven years ago in 2013 globally. And we should have every expectation that it will continue to fall, given that the developed world is shutting coal plants down at a fast pace now, and the presumed new markets for coal, like China and India, are beginning to turn away from coal and shut down a few of their own plants, and that renewables are now cheaper than just about anything else everywhere in the world, as we discussed with Tim Buckley in episodes 91 and 93, and that in probably less than five years, even natural gas won't be able to compete with renewables anymore. So we're probably not going to build a lot more gas capacity anymore either, certainly not decades from now, as these warming scenarios would require. And we're very likely at or approaching peak demand for oil, or at least the oil majors seem to think so, because they're pulling the plug on some of these big projects. They're not as eager to invest in the big projects that would produce large amounts of oil in the future. And in fact, they're even writing off some of their more recently acquired assets. They've been making headlines recently for doing that. And as we heard from Mark Lewis in episode 110, we also have plenty of reason to believe that the economics of vehicles are so incredibly in favor of switching to electric vehicles powered by wind and solar that transportation electrification is essentially inevitable, or at least it looks that way to me. So not only do I not see us burning all the known fossil fuel reserves, I don't see the future consumption of fossil fuels even getting us to the scenarios that show 2.5 degrees of warming. In fact, 
Given that we're at about one degree of warming now, and if the Goodwin paper on the forcing effects of feedback loops is in the right ballpark, I'm not even convinced that two degrees of warming is guaranteed. And that's without any exotic new technologies like carbon capture and sequestration or advanced nuclear or geoengineering or anything, in fact, beyond the trajectory that we're already on. So help me out. What am I missing here? Uh, you're too optimistic. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> So, they're good points and actually, you know, there's a couple of nuances. There's one thing which is this thing that emissions need to go to zero eventually. So, if you want to stabilise at two degrees, then you need to get to zero. I'll just throw that in as a question there, which maybe we come back to. Okay. But another thing, one of your recent episodes, Kingsmill Bond, I think it was 108. Mm. He talked about, I think it was gradual versus marginal changes right and he was saying that some people so yourself would be one of these people take a much more marginal approach looking at growth rates the way things are changing he's saying investors often take that approach and he's saying scenarios are often in much more gradual thinking you know worried about inertia and all this sort of stuff mm-hmm. you know i'm not necessarily agree with everything that he sort of argued that podcast but it's an interesting way to think about it so On the renewable side, on the new technology side, let's say, I'm sort of very happy to take a more marginal look looking at growth rates and so on. The thing where I'm a little bit more nervous is on the fossil fuel side, where the fossil fuels will decline at those rates. So, you know, looking for a new market is a little bit different, getting rid of vested interest in an old market. So people might hang on to the coal, oil, gas, try and keep them going as long as they can, get every last drop of dividend they can out of them before they eventually get rid of them. True. So that's where I'm a little bit nervous. And also looking around the world, the coal fleet in Asia is very young. So the IEA, International Energy Agency that everyone loves critiquing on their solar, they have a nice statistic. I think the age of the coal fleet in Asia is on average 12 years. So there's a lot of young coal power plants in China and India, and you know I don't think they're just going to throw them away so easily. You know, in Europe and the US, I'm sure we can throw away coal power plants quite easily because they're basically dead anyway. Right. But when they're 12 years old, you might take a different view of that. Yeah. So I'm not as bullish as you would be. I'm sort of happy on the wind, solar, EV, batteries, you know, that sort of side. New technology, I'm quite happy more of my concern is how fast we can ditch the fossil fuels. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And then you've got this developing, developed country thing, which I mentioned, and this net zero thing. So, you know, getting the US to net zero in 2050, if you have the right politics in place. Now, I think the US can do that. Getting China or India or Indonesia or Brazil or South Africa, we had an interesting podcast on that not long ago. Getting those countries to zero 2050 or 2075 might be a completely different game. Mm -hmm. So this is where my nerves come in, if you like, or my slightly gradual thinking, to use that Kingsmill Bond language. Right. So what is your scenario for emissions? What do you think is really going to happen? Yeah, so... This is a feeling, that feeling backed up a little bit by some data and analysis, maybe not so different to the way you think about it. But I'd expect probably in the 2020s sometime we would get a peak in emissions. 
and slowly decline after that. But I think the decline, you know, I'd spend too much time looking at emission statistics. They're bouncing up and down from year to year. So you'll have times when they go up, go down, but on the average, you're sort of heading in a downward trajectory in a slowish sort of way, which would probably put you towards the, I don't know, two and a half, you know, maybe territory. You know, I haven't done a detailed calculation there, but then temperatures may keep rising because you don't get to net zero. So the end of the century, you might be two and a half, but then you slowly rise. But this is without doing too much. If you start to add on top of that, then maybe we start to do a few things in terms of policy, then I think that could pretty easily become steeper. Whether we could get to this 25% reduction by 2030, that's an interesting question. Mm. I'd sort of pull it apart by country. So what would happen in the US and the EU? What do you think would happen in China and India? And then when you add those together, does that add up to 25% by 2030? So, you know, how much more growth do you have in India? Will their emissions still be growing? You discussed with Tim Buckley some episode when he's quite sort of bullish on coal going and solar coming, but then he does see some growth in coal, I think. But how much longer, even in the bullish perspective, how much longer do you see growth in coal or growth in emissions in India. These are the sort of the difficult questions. Yeah. You've also got transport, so you've got oil consumption and so on, which makes it a bit more complex. Right. Is that a non-answer? Yeah. I mean, I think you've laid out the important factors there well. You know, if you take the current situation globally on all these different vectors that we've discussed and you just project them forward, I can see how you would get to a 2.5 degrees at least kind of a warming. And my view is that we're going to actually accelerate our energy transition efforts in the future and that we're going to decrease emissions at a faster rate than those trend lines would say, then it's incumbent on me to say, well, what are these disruptive factors that are going to cause the current trajectory to change? Like, I'm the one making the disruptive forecast. So I get that. I think we've presented a lot of evidence on this show that those disruptive factors are in fact in play here. And it continues to annoy and distress me that that the IPCC modeling framework that we've been discussing here doesn't have at least one scenario in it that I would recognize as representative of all of these different transition trends that I see happening. I think that's a fair critique. And you know the way they generally work in the scenario literature is they make up these no policy baselines or they make up where you basically have zero climate policy or they sort of have current policies for a little bit and then it sort of weakens out in a sense and you still have rising emissions. But there's no one really looking at forecasting. A few energy companies do it, but basically trying to see where emissions are actually going. Yeah, but the energy companies that do those forecasts typically are the ones with fossil fuels on the books, and they project much higher emissions futures than I would, and or they project the emergence of CCS and things like that that would counteract the emissions effects, which I wouldn't bet on either. Yeah, there are a few variants. I'm going to have a very Norwegian bias here. There's a company called DNVGL yep. who has an energy transition 
Outlook. And I do listen to their podcast, by the way. Okay. Yeah, so that's good. They probably listen to yours. Hello, DNV. <laughs> and yeah, I can't remember exactly where their emissions go down, but they're certainly not as aggressive as you, I don't think, but right. certainly on the downside. I think another Norwegian entity, Statcraft, they do scenarios and you know they're a more renewable company, a lot of hydro, wind power and so on. And they're more bullish than most, maybe not as far as you've gone. They also see problems potentially, you know, in decades time on integration and so on and so forth. So you can paint out different complexities in that picture as well. And then these different organizations, you know, they're also going to do it to a certain degree. We can debate how much going to be playing to their audience or their interests. You know, so if I just take a cynical view of DNVGL, knowing that they may be listening to me, <laughs> they're also an actor in a market and trying to get customers and so on and so forth. So sure. that may indicate some of the customers that they see having in the future, where the company likes to go. And then you can trade that off with, I don't know, Equinor, the Norwegian oil company, and the scenarios that they play with and so on. But I mean, this sort of stuff is, you know, you take all this knowledge and put it together. And based on that, you can try and build a picture, you weigh up different scenarios from different organizations. And and from that, you build a picture of where you may actually think things might go, a sort of a synthesis, yeah, which is a useful exercise. All right. Well, I can see how reasonable people may differ depending on their outlook of how things are going to evolve over the next several decades as to whether we end up at sort of two degrees or two and a half degrees or somewhere north of that. But once again, I have to say that in my view, RCP 8.5 is in fact bollocks. There's no way that's going to happen. Certainly not given the trajectory that I think we're now on. I mean, we'd have to have a whole bunch of very unlikely things go totally wrong simultaneously for that to even be remotely possible. It is definitely emphatically not a business as usual scenario by any stretch of the imagination, which means that the kind of hysterical press that we've seen lately about the climate, like the work of David Wallace Wells, which talks about scenarios like RCP 8.5 as if they were all but assured, is much more in the realm of fantasy than reality at this point, in my opinion. But again, tell me if you think I'm totally wrong about that. No, I'm happy to say RCP 8.5 is bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think some people are starting to pick up on that and think even David Wallace-Wells is being a bit more nuanced and is more interested in, let's say, quote, realistic pathways. Yeah, you can get into some technical climate issues on why we may want to look at RCP 8.5. You know, if you're a model builder and you want to test your model, then you might want to smash your model with a sledgehammer <laughs> to see how your model works, which is fine. I don't have anything against that. As a modeler, I'd probably do the same. You want to push your model to the limits, but then you don't go publish a paper and go to whatever newspaper and say, this is what climate impacts will be in 2100. I think that's a little bit disingenuous. Not that everyone does that, of course, but those that do shouldn't do that. Hmm. <laughs> and I think we need to make a much more nuanced discussion. And if you're trying to motivate mitigation, then you know being much more optimistic could be a much smarter way to go. So this notion that the world has to hit zero emissions by 2075 to limit warming to two degrees C or, again, whatever similar benchmark people seize upon, I think we all understand that these benchmarks 
are approximations of when emissions would need to fall to zero in order to have a 50% chance of staying below two degrees of warming, or as you mentioned earlier, there was like a 66% probability. So these things refer to probability distributions, not absolute limits where you hit a number and then it flips a switch. But there's a lot of wiggle room there. So for instance, I believe in your previous appearance on the show, we talked about emission scenarios in which the emissions rise above the prescribed level in this century, but then maybe fall below it or fall to zero in the next century, which highlights the fact that all these scenarios not only refer to probability distributions, but they refer to targets based on reaching a safe level by 2100. But of course, there's nothing special about 2100. The world isn't going to end then. We just use the end of the century as a convenient endpoint for policy formation, right? So the notion that we need to reach zero emissions by one date or another are really kind of squishy, aren't they? I mean, is there really a point at which we absolutely have to get to zero CO2 emissions in order to stay under two degrees C of warming? No, there will always be some uncertainty. You know, you've got uncertainty in the climate system. What's the current temperature? How are we going to define two degrees or one and a half or whatever? You've got the non-CO2, which becomes relatively important. So you could never really pin down an exact number, although it could have a useful communication point. So if I say, for example, emissions need to be zero by 2050, versus if I say, well, you know, there's a bit of uncertainty, maybe emissions need to be zero by 2050, maybe 2100, I'm not quite sure, but somewhere around there, then that's the more maybe correct scientific way to say it, but maybe it won't work as effectively as a communication tool than saying 2050, because I'm giving the impression of uncertainty. This comes back to what we were talking about with the UNEP emissions gap report and this 7.6%. Right. But you sort of mentioned this 50% and 66%, all this technical stuff. It starts to become abstract, but I tend to keep it sort of vague. I'll say numbers like 2050 because it's a nice round number. And then you can have a discussion around 2050 and you can say things like you would expect rich countries to go a bit faster, get to zero earlier, poor countries to go a little bit slower, they get to zero a little bit later. So you can have those sorts of discussions when you mention a specific number in a sense. Mm. But you know there is going to be no number. The only number you may get is if it's not zero by, I don't know, a given year, let's say 2100, then we'll definitely go over a given temperature limit. Mm-hmm. And this 66% chance, I should add, is something that's quite confusing to people. So 50% chance is actually the median or the average, if you like. And for two degrees, if you want 50-50 median that you're going to hit two degrees, then it will be something like 2100 to get to zero. Interesting. If you start to take what's called a 66% chance below two degrees, then you'll be about 1.8 degrees at the end of the century in a median number which means you will get to zero, you know, 2075, something like that, plus minus. Uh-huh. When you get to zero in 2050, you're really talking about 1.5 degrees. Oh, that's really helpful, actually. <laughs> I've never really okay, had anybody explain good. it to me that way. <laughs> yeah, so this is one nice reason to work with the zero year as opposed to a carbon budget. So if I said, 
we've got 600 billion tons left of the carbon budget you know what the hell does that mean like what does that mean for the us what does that mean for this country and what is that number anyway yeah whereas if i say zero 2050 it's the same number just expressed differently and it's much easier i think to understand actually i'll just simplify it a little bit further let's say I have to write a paper on this to prove that it's true. <laughs> but let's say 1.5 degrees, you'll have to hit zero 2050. 1.75 degrees, 2075. 2 degrees, 2100. There you go. Nice round numbers. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Approximately correct. I mean, it sort of sounds like you think two degrees is in the bag now. It's the net zero thing that gets me. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you a question now. How easy do you think to be zero will be. Yeah. Well, zero is a tough number to hit. There's just so much uncertainty. As I look into the future, as I look over the rest of the century, I could definitely tell a story where we're able to hit zero by 2050 under pretty aggressive action. I could definitely tell a story about hitting zero by the end of the century probably just through pure market activity, frankly. But there's, again, all these things that come into play that nobody knows how it will evolve. And so in that sense, I am sympathetic to why we have these higher emission scenarios. It's like, well, what if the world just completely fails to do anything effectual? But then I'm also just looking at the market trends, and I am very much aligned in my view of that with Kingsmill Bond. It's like, well, look at what the market's doing, look at the way that investors look at this stuff. You'd be a fool to invest any money in coal right now. In fact, in the news segment of this episode, we're going to talk about even more large banking and asset managing institutions that are now withdrawing financing and withdrawing funding and withdrawing investments from coal projects and from oil and gas as well. So there's plenty of evidence to think that we're not going to just completely fail to take action and that we are not in a no policy world. But I think getting to two degrees is definitely possible. Yeah, so you think we have the technologies for two degrees, aviation, shipping, steel, we can put aside agriculture and so on? Yeah, I mean, all those hard to decarbonize sectors are still very much an open question, I think. I guess in my mind, there probably still is a future in which the really hard to decarbonize sectors still produce emissions, we don't get to zero, but we do fall below the rate at which the Earth can naturally absorb them. And what about if we have machines which suck carbon out of the air? Well, that would be great. Capture. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all for that. But of course, as we say here in the US, I'm from Missouri, you know, show me. I'm not sure that those things will ever be economically viable at a commercial scale, but neither is anyone else. And if we have some technologies that will help us do that, I think that's great. You know, on the one hand, it may sound like I'm extremely optimistic in my outlook for how much warming we're actually on track to get. But again, at the same time, I've seen that some of the climate models being developed for the next IPCC assessment due a few years from now are actually showing much more warming from CO2 than previous versions. So does this mean that the latest science is actually suggesting that climate change will actually be worse than we thought? And what do these new results really mean in the big picture? 
Yeah, so this is going to be really interesting to see. So, you know, as someone that's into the science, then, you know, I'm fascinated for how the scientists are going to write this IPCC report with these new models and also the communication points, how it's going to be communicated. I think there's a nice example from the last IPCC report, which was 2013. So you might remember the talk of the town back then was the hiatus. Right. What the hell happened to the hiatus? <laughs> Where the bloody hell are you? It went on hiatus, uh, for, I for, think. <laughs> yeah. And scientists at the time were scrambling to write papers, to put it in context of the models and long-term and a lot of struggling to get text right in the report and pressure from the governments to write text about this hiatus and explain it, and now we've forgotten about it. Mm. So now I'm thinking, okay, when we get to the next report in 10 years' time, these, in quotes, war models, they won't be a thing at all. There was an explanation. So I think we need a little bit of time to go through. So not all the model results are in, but certainly the ones that are in are, let's say, warm. They still have to follow the observational period, 1850 up to today. And then after that, they go warm. So what's the mechanism at play in the models? Is it the same mechanism in all models? Hmm. You know, there's a new generation of models, so they've got more processes, more complexity. They've tried to model ice better, tried to model clouds better, tried to model aerosols, so SO2 emissions and that type of stuff better. You need a bit more time to make sure that you've done all that right. And maybe things will change. So there's going to be a huge focus on this, I think, in the next year or two as these results come out. But we really need to understand why they're warmer and there may be some good explanations. Maybe in 20 years' time, we'll Zeke, as he's a... Let me guess, probably a 60-year-old or something. Zeke House Father will be writing a paper showing, you know, 70 years of models have been spot on. <laughs> yeah, so we just have to try not to get overly excited. And the implications are the same. Still need to do the same on the energy sector. Deploy the solar, wind, EVs, batteries, demand management, behavioral change, get that all happening, get the fossils out of the system. The conclusion is going to be the same no matter if the models are warmer or not. Hmm. That's a good point. And we're heading for 2.5 or 3 degrees C with our pathetic policies now, so let's move a little faster. Yeah. Right. And we can do that. Plenty of scope to move faster. Part 2. This is an excerpt from episode 95, in which we talk with Dmitry Bogdanov, a researcher who works with a team of scientists that developed a sophisticated model using multiple scenarios to show how the world could limit warming to 1.5 degrees C with a cost-effective, global, 100% renewable energy system that does not use negative carbon technologies and provides all the energy needed for electricity, heat, transport, and desalination by 2050. In this excerpt, we discuss some of that research. You did a paper on cooperation between North and South America titled Analyzing the Feasibility of Powering the Americas with Renewable Energy and Interregional Grid Interconnections by 2030. And here you found that a fully renewable energy system was possible for the Americas at a levelized cost of energy between 49 and 59 euros per megawatt hour or between about 5 and 7 US cents per kilowatt hour. Again, on par with the wholesale cost of existing fossil-fueled power generation in the US. And again, you assume the usage of synthetic gas here, yes? 
Yes, for this study in total we had eight scenarios and we assumed synthetic gas as a part of solution for all of them. In all the scenarios, this can be the solution for the seasonal storage, as I said before. But for integration scenario, we also wanted to check the possibility to use interregional trades of this synthetic natural gas to add some interconnections, maybe cheaper interconnections between regions. But we saw that it's not that competitive in Americas to trade synthetic natural gas. Are you assuming that that trade would be done by pipeline or by ship cargoes? We've been using these liquefied natural gas cargo ships. We use these assumptions. Okay. So if you assumed that the synthetic gas trade was being done through pipelines, it might be cheaper. Or more expensive. Okay. It's a very complicated case. Yeah. And again, the problem is the high distance between major consumption centers of North America and South America. And we have the best sites for PV and wind in South America and maybe in the world in Patagonia. It's a very windy place. And here you can produce natural gas or hydrogen for a very low, low cost. Mm-hmm. But when you add cost of transportation, in some cases, local production can be still cheaper than import from Patagonia. Yeah, okay. So one finding of this paper that really jumped out at me was that energy storage in the Americas would actually be cheaper than long-distance electricity transmission lines. Why is that? In the results of this paper, we see that interconnections would result in minor electricity cost decrease. So I would say that it's wrong to discuss what is cheaper grade of storage. Both are important components. Both will provide flexibility to the system and both are almost inevitable in a system with high shares of renewables. Okay. But in case of America, we see that regional integration inside South or North America results in huge benefits. That's due to the fact that East to West integration, which we'll see in both South and North America, will benefit PV generation. And in the same time, we see that distances between regions in North American regions and South American regions is quite small, which makes transmission grade costs more comparable to storage cost and even lower. That's why we saw huge benefits inside the regions. But if we talk about integration of North and South America, we see that major energy consumption centers are too far away and the interconnection of them will be too costly and the losses in such interconnection will be too high. Of course, regions on the border of South and North America, major regions, can benefit from this integration. And we saw that. That's why the total LCOE for integrated case was slightly lower. But this benefit is really minor because bordering regions are rather small and their energy demand is quite insignificant. Gotcha. I guess the real takeaway here is that although there are some specific places in which energy storage in the Americas could be cheaper than long-distance transmission lines. You you really need both, and those cost differences aren't great enough to really 
change the way that you construct your model or to dictate how you should spend your money, essentially. Like, you should still do both. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And if we talk about this concept of flexibility, we see that transmission grid can provide flexibility. And batteries, obviously, they provide flexibility. But they provide it in quite different domain. If storage lets us shift energy from one time to another time, from time deficit, time of energy surplus, and store it to use in the time of energy deficit, grids are working in completely different domain. They shift energy from area with energy surplus to area with energy deficit. And sometimes they can overlap and partially solve these issues. But ultimately, they cannot fully substitute each other. So both are important. Yeah, that's a great observation. You know, it's not something I'd really thought about very much, that transmission is good for transferring a surplus from one place to another, whereas storage is good for transferring a surplus from one time to another. Yeah, but still the concept is quite the same. Yeah. And during some of our studies, we saw that in regions with very high share of wind, we see that grid can substitute long-term storage or mid-term storage. Mm -hmm. But it cannot substitute short-term storage because of like daily cycles of PV. So all different kinds of storage and all different kind of transmission, high voltage, DC or AC should be part of the solution. So we don't have a silver bullet here. So the final solution will be the result of synergy of many available technologies. Right. Okay. So then you and your colleagues moved on to another paper on North and Southeast Asia titled, Can Australia Power the Energy-Hungry Asia with Renewable Energy? And in this paper, you modeled a cost-optimized 100% renewable energy system for East Asia, divided into 20 subregions for the year 2030, which met demand for power, desalination, and industrial gas on an hourly basis for an entire year. And here you found that the lowest cost system would actually use synthetic gas and deliver a 100% renewable energy system in East Asia at an LCOE of just 52 euros per megawatt hour, or about 6 cents US per kilowatt hour which is pretty phenomenal. And I think my main question with this study was how much of the demand in each country would be met with domestic renewables and how much would have to be provided by imported electricity or synthetic gas, especially for China, which is by far the largest country of the bunch. So this share varies a lot country to country. In total, the most dependent on imports will be the regions with poor or average resources which are located quite close to regions with best resources in the area. And we can see that in East China, South China, the regions with the highest share of imports. But in total, China will be self-sufficient and even it will export some energy to the neighbors, mainly due to excellent PV and wind in Tibet and in the Mongolia regions. Huh. Some countries like Malaysia, Vietnam, Myanmar, Thailand, Korea, Japan, they will benefit from imports. So they will be net importers. Okay. But for all these countries, share of imports will be less than 10% of total energy consumption. So it will be really minor. 
Wow, that is fascinating. You know, another interesting thing about that paper, which really is in contrast to your findings on North America, was that HVDC transmission lines would be cheaper than storage because they could allow the low-cost wind and solar exports from some subregions, as I think you just mentioned, Tibet and Mongolia. But that long-distance transmission lines from Australia would not be the most cost-effective way for East Asia to take advantage of the abundant solar and wind resources in Australia. However, you speculate that Australia could generate a lot of synthetic gas and then liquefy it and ship it to East Asia in a cost-effective way, possibly more cost-effectively than nuclear or than fossil fuel plants equipped with carbon capture and storage technology. And I got to say, that really surprised me. I would say that the results of America's paper and East Asia paper were quite comparable in many aspects. So in both cases, we saw that short distance transmission lines are very important part of the solution and many regions benefit from that. But really long interconnections, they will not really work because current high voltage DC is quite expensive. And if we're talking about Southeast Asia and Northeast Asia, interconnection, we need to use underwater cables, which will be even more expensive. Finally, we have very expensive interconnection, which most probably used for a very small amount of time for like peak shaving in some regions or to export energy during energy surplus. Because both clusters, Southeast Asia and Northeast Asia, they have actually perfect local resources. Australia can cover its demand on its own and in Chinese regions of Tibet and Inner Mongolia can provide energy for the whole China and even export energy to neighboring countries. So in total, it's just a cost question. Hmm. If the grid interconnection will be cheaper, if we'll see huge progress in this account, then high voltage DC can become very important solution and it will be used. But with the assumptions we have now, we don't specify what technology system has to use. Right. It decides during the optimization. And in both of these cases, long distance high voltage DC interconnection wasn't competitive to local energy generation and storage. Huh. Yeah, this is really interesting because, I mean, we've certainly on this show before talked with modelers who really tried to understand what is the potential for a high renewables system using a lot more HVDC. But I don't think we have talked to anyone that really modeled that as compared with using local synthetic gas instead, or as you say, generating synthetic gas in a place like Australia and then liquefying it and shipping it to the mainland. So that's really interesting to me to understand sort of this cost trade-off between using synthetic gas and even shipping it versus HVDC cables. Yeah, but that's this SNG thing is the biggest difference between Americas and East Asia papers. Because as I said, in Americas, difference between local generation, local production of SNG, and production of SNG in this exporting country. This difference was too small and 
it was smaller than the cost of transportation hmm. with LNG carriers. But here we saw that in the regions with high energy consumption density, especially this Korea, Japan, and East Asia, we saw that local production of SNG will be too expensive. They already import some electricity from other regions to cover their power demand, so they don't have local energy to produce this SNG locally. Gotcha. That's why for them it's that's optimal solution to just import LNG, which was produced in the area with very low LCOE, and use it for their chemical industry or all other non-energetic use. Right. And I guess we should mention that your team has made the results of these studies available in a slick online tool called the Internet of Energy, which allows people to visualize how a global electricity system based entirely on renewables can operate, including things like regional cooperation and imports and exports. And as always, I've put a link to that in the show notes. But I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about this model, and in particular, how it takes into account the way that each region transitions from the fossil-based systems they have today to a fully 100% renewable system by 2050. That was the next step of our studies, because when we went through the whole world and we saw that it's possible to build such the system, then we created this Internet of Energy where we can show how it works to everyone. And hour by hour, you can see how, how different technologies are used when storage charges, when storage discharges, and how total generation perfectly follows electricity demand. Actually, not perfectly, because in in the case of 100% renewable energy system, some electricity excess will naturally occur. Yeah, It will be part of the system. And the next step was to see how this transition can happen. And that was the basis for our recent nature communication paper. Basically, it's, it's basically the same model, but we specify what are available power plants fleet existing in the beginning of each step. And the system has to fill the gap with other technologies to satisfy energy demand on each step. So step by step, we know what capacities are installed, what capacities have to be decommissioned because they're at the end of their technical lifetime. And we see how system step by step changes towards completely different 100% renewable system. Yeah, it's really cool. It's fun to watch it happen. It's a very slick presentation. So I guess I'm wondering, like, what's the distance or the time between each step? Like, was each step a certain number of years or what? Uh, currently, we've been modeling the system starting from 2015. And the target of the model was to fully transform towards 100% renewables by 2050. And we've been doing it with five-year steps. Five-year steps, okay. So at each five-year interval, you're basically saying, all right, what's the fleet now? 
what's the fleet now, right? And modeling the cost. And actually, that includes a lot of things, the capital expenditures, the operational expenditures, the ramping costs for each technology, the fuel costs. And actually, I think you're pricing in a cost for greenhouse gas emissions as well. Yes, it's all part of the solution. We need and we want to take into account all energy-related costs to better understand the total costs of the system. So does nuclear or CCS play a role in here? Actually not. Because in our case, we assume that already built nuclear power plants and nuclear power plants which which will be built in the next years, they will be part of the solution and they will operate until the end of its lifetime. But I don't think that actually nuclear and CCS are sustainable technologies. For me, it's more like temporary solution, which of course saves some problems of today, but it will create huge problems for next generations, such as handling of nuclear wastes or handling these CO2 aquifers or any other storage filled with gases CO2 because currently there is no active technology to convert gases CO2 to neutral solid form which can't be used for energy and can be stored forever without the risk that it will come out this or that way. Mm-hmm. So that are the reasons why we don't consider CCS and nuclear technologies currently in our main model. But for some modelings, for some scenarios, we use nuclear and CCS. But in this exact study, it wasn't part of the solution. Gotcha. Okay. So it's not that you have ruled out nuclear and CCS because you don't think they're sustainable, or is it? Or are they just simply not competitive economically? That's another moment. With current cost assumptions we have for nuclear, it won't be competitive. Like Leparanta in Finland, there is like many years problem of building one nuclear power plant. And now we have huge construction time overrun and huge cost overrun for this power plant. You're talking about the Okiloto plant, yes? Yes, yes. And the similar stories, they happen all around the world quite often. Yeah, (laughs) we have a few famous examples over here in the US. (laughs) Yeah, and official costs of nuclear power plants can be quite low if it's stated somewhere. But if you'll calculate all these time overruns, cost overruns, if you'll add decommissioning cost of this nuclear power plant, it will be completely different numbers. And if it is economically feasible solution, here I'm not sure. Yeah. So that's why we don't use it in our system as well. And when we use it, I see that with the assumptions we have, It's not economically feasible. System decides not to use it, not to install it, only run the existing capacity. Okay. 
All right, so having built up all these regional assessments, your most recent paper tackles the electricity system, but not the total energy system, for the entire world. And this paper in the journal Nature Communications was titled Radical Transformation Pathways Toward Sustainable Electricity Via Evolutionary Steps. And that's the paper actually that originally came to my attention and made me want to invite you on the show. I think it's really quite an exciting piece of work. I mean, it looks at the world as nine major regions or 145 subregions and studies them one by one, collecting the data and the proficiency for the global transition at hourly resolution, using data on the renewable resources in each region and performing a least cost optimization as with the previous regional studies. Is that basically right? Yes, the understanding of these regions and assumptions is definitely based on the previous studies. And as it was planned from the beginning, we planned this process to go like this. But here we made an important step ahead. We performed the transition modeling. So we saw not just how the optimal 100% renewable energy system can look, but how we can transform the existing system step by step to reach this optimal carbon neutral energy system. Right. So you accounted for the retirement of existing fossil fuel plants as a part of this transition modeling and their replacement with renewable generation or storage and transmission. So was that done on like a plant by plant basis or a sub-regional basis? And how did you deal with system balancing, you know, at some temporal resolution? We do that on a regional basis from the existing databases. We collected the data about all the power plants built since the beginning of the last century, and then we allocated them to each of these 145 regions and in five years steps. So now we know what's the capacity of each type of power plant built in each of these 145 regions in every five year steps from 1960s. Hmm. Based on this data and the data about technical lifetime of all these different types of power plants, we calculate when this part of capacity of the region has to be decommissioned. And based on that, we calculate the existing fleet in the beginning of each of the steps of transition. Hmm. Wow. I love the fact that you're actually taking into account the total lifetime of each plant and really thinking about how does the transition work step by step, rather than just sort of leaping into a new future reality. So what did you find about how the relatively long technical lifetime of thermal power plants affects the transition process? We find that wrong decisions made at some point can really affect the system for a long, long period of time. Hmm. Because sometimes we see that some quite efficient and modern coal power plants can be built in some country, but in 10, 15 years, it's still this capacity, it's still present in the system, in our model. But the model decides not to use it because it's not cost competitive to renewables. And I think that can be the reality that's what we'll see in the future because renewables, in most of the cases, in my opinion, they will be always first in this merit order in the market. Right. And then they will push this call 
or gas or oil generation on top. And these coal power plants or gas turbines, they will work less and less because they can't sell energy anymore for their marginal price. And next thing that if they work for less amount of time, they actually become more expensive because current coal technology is not flexible enough. Current combined cycle gas turbines are not flexible enough. And due to ramping up and down for these few hours, then they can actually sell energy for the system. This ramping will be very costly and it will even decrease the efficiency of these plants and will result in even higher emissions per unit of generated electricity. So I'm quite skeptical about the future of thermal power plants. And I see that the reality, the fact that quite a lot of coal power plants are currently installed in many regions, they're financed, they're commissioned, and I think it will be a huge problem. It will be stranded investment in the very end because every additional percent of renewables kills the economy of these power plants. Yeah, it's something we discussed at length recently with Tim Buckley of IEFA about how, as you say, you've got these dropping load factors for a large coal fleet that's relatively new, especially in India and other parts of Southeast Asia. And effectively, it's turning them into stranded assets. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we see in the model as well. Yeah. If it's built, soon enough, it's not used at all. But it results in higher overall cost of electricity because if investors want to keep it as a cold reserve, and some people discuss that, that thermal power plants have to be part of the system as a reserve, then someone have to pay for this capex. Like, it will be additional loads on the consumer. Yeah, yeah. So what were the results of this global electricity study in terms of the LCOE at which it's feasible and what the character of the system is in 2050? We see that the system will be very different in different parts of the world, naturally. But in total, if we calculate average electricity costs over the world, which is kind of wrong, it can be around 52 euros per megawatt hour. With uncertainty range, we can say that it's in between 45 to 58 euros per megawatt hour. And that will be less than current level S cost of electricity, which we calculated based on the available data. And Of course, every country, every region will have its own specific structure of energy system with different shares of wind and solar. We'll see more wind-dependent regions, more hydro-dependent regions. But in total, most of the world will build their energy systems based on PV as the least cost energy supplier of the future. Wow. Accordingly to our calculation, PV will generate almost 70% of all electricity consumed in the world. And wind will contribute only 18%. Rest is biomass and hydro, which are 
quite limited because we need to consider only sustainable biomass and we really need to reconsider plans of hydro power plants development because it reduces our CO2 emissions but in the same time it violates other sustainability goals like we kill a lot of species currently in Chinese rivers due to commissioning of new hydropower plants and change of the river regime, river flows. Mm -hmm. So, in my opinion, this upscaling of hydro should be reconsidered, and that's reflected in our assumptions. We don't consider a huge increase in in hydro capacities in the future. Most of the increase we have can be covered just by repowering of existing old power plants with more advanced, more efficient equipment, and by finishing the construction of hydro dams and hydro power plants, which are already planned or already in production. Wow. Those assumptions make perfect sense to me, but I'm sort of amazed that solar will meet 70% of the world's electricity needs. I mean, that's quite a finding. To what extent would such a system depend on a lot of new HVDC transmission lines to move all that power around? Not much, in my opinion. Based on the results we had in all these studies, I see that high-voltage DC interconnection is far more important for wind generation. Huh. For PV, it's more important to balance daily cycles, and it's more important to have battery storage for these services. But, of course, there are some interesting exceptions, like India, where we saw that high-voltage DC grid is the solution for the monsoon season. Monsoon does not cover the whole country at once, and the grid helps to supply the affected regions with the power from the other regions where monsoon and clouds haven't decreased PV generation yet. So... That's the very interesting fact. And the conclusion here is that in future, there will be no standard solution. Every country, every region will have very, very specific energy system. And I'm really curious to see how it will work finally, because it should be built like this in the very end. Another thing that in this study, we considered self-sufficient countries. All the countries covered their energy demand, electricity demand, based on their local resources. So high-voltage DC grids are important in this case for big countries like United States, Canada, Brazil, Argentina, Russia, China, India, Indonesia, Australia, all the countries which were divided in several sub-regions mm -hmm. in our study. Right. There we can see the impact of high-voltage DC. But for smaller countries, which were represented as one node, we don't see the impact of high-voltage DC because it's one node. But in many cases, uh, like we see it in Germany, it can be really important even on this one country level. 
Yeah. High voltage DC can be built. But that's a really interesting finding because I think sort of the layman perspective would be, well, if the world is going to be 70% powered by solar, obviously we need lots of transmission lines to send this power around. And that really demonstrates the power of the modeling that you've done here, which is to say, no, if you actually look at it at a very discrete level, that's not necessary. For me, it's quite simple to understand that it wouldn't work perfectly. Because if we imagine the globe, and some people, they just say, you need solar, you need high voltage DC, and you'll transmit the solar energy around the globe. But just imagine what's the length of this transmission grid of this high voltage DC line to transmit energy through 12 time zones uh -huh. from midday to midnight. Right. It's many thousands kilometers. And what are the losses in such a long line? Yeah, yeah. And what's the cost of such a long line? So for me, just based on this basic observation, economy of such projects are quite questionable. Yeah. When we talk about shorter distances, yes. But then if we're in the same time zone, most probably solar conditions are quite similar in both nodes, right? And these differences due to small cloud flying around, it will be covered by local distribution grid to which these power plants are connected. So from this perspective, I think that our findings about like strong coupling of high voltage DC and wind it's not just strange finding from the model, but it can be close to reality. Interesting. You know, one of the particularly curious things about this model, I think, is that it assumed that costs for renewables and storage would continue to decline along the existing learning curves. Now, that might seem obvious, but it's not an assumption that I often see made about how the future energy system will evolve. So how did you do that cost modeling and why don't you think others don't do it in a similar way? So we assume that cost of PV and batteries will continue to decline. Now we see that both technologies follow the learning curve trend quite precisely. At the same time, we do not model these costs. We used assumptions available from the literature and from various sources, which are all referenced in the papers. And sometimes these numbers look too optimistic, even for me and my colleagues, but we have to regularly update them currently to reflect the fact that cost decreases even faster than it was assumed. For example, our assumptions for PV capex for 2020 are higher than the capex of some PV power plants commissioned last year. And hmm. that's amazing, but that's the fact. Hmm. Interesting. I guess what's always puzzled me why so many of these modeling systems, especially ones that look out for decades, don't really assume the kind of cost declines will continue that have happened in recent years. It's always really dangerous to simply extrapolate <laughs> the trends seen in the past. And there should be some bottom level for these technologies. But finally, in most of the cases, limits are the cost of production due to material costs and energy and labor. 
but in case of PV, we don't really have limits due to labor because all the processes can be strongly automatized. Mm-hmm. Raw materials are available currently. The production of silicon can be upscaled. Copper can be substituted by aluminum by some extent. So there can be minor issues, but all the most important materials are available. The question is energy. And if we use more and more renewables and produce cheaper energy with that, it should be like a closed loop. Cost decrease in PV capex will lead to cheaper electricity. And finally, it should also lead to cheaper PV modules production and again and again and again. So here I'm quite optimistic. And I see that some people are also quite optimistic and we use assumptions from their papers. But in the same time, I'm not the engineer in this field. I don't work with modules productions and my words are not that important here. So that's my feeling. And we have some references to prove that it can be right. Part three. This is an excerpt from episode 110, in which we talk with Mark Lewis, a financial analyst of climate change investment opportunities, about some of his research comparing electric vehicles to conventional internal combustion engine vehicles. In this excerpt, we reviewed his evidence showing why ever cheaper renewables are an essentially deflationary competitor that will continue to undercut fossil fuels and nuclear power. On the capital cost side, I think this is where it really bears emphasizing that you've used extremely, in my view, conservative numbers here. I mean, you've got onshore wind breaking even at at a levelized cost of energy and LCOE, which is sort of an all-in calculation, including CapEx and OpEx, et cetera. Onshore wind breaks even at $60 a megawatt hour. Offshore wind at $70 a megawatt hour and solar PV breaking even at $65 a megawatt hour. I mean, those are, as our listeners are well aware, well above the PPA prices that we've seen recently. On the cost of these technologies then, yes. I mean, you're right. And again, I mean, I'm taking essentially numbers that are global averages, but you're absolutely right. I mean, just to take numbers in a US context, I mean, Texas, I think you can do new onshore wind now, certainly below $30 a megawatt hour. Solar, obviously, in the Sunbelt states of the US, you can probably do that at $30 a megawatt hour. In the very best locations globally, you're below $20 a megawatt hour now. Yeah, I mean, as I did my recent survey of costs, we've seen onshore wind regularly coming in below $25 a megawatt hour in places wow. all over the world, really, which is which is yep. less than half the price of your assumption here. We've seen offshore wind yep. coming in at just $50 a megawatt hour in the UK's latest auction, which is only about two thirds of the cost. And then we've seen solar plus storage going for about $40 a megawatt hour in the US. And if you take out the storage, just the solar bit, we're under $20 a megawatt hour, which is about a third of the price that you're assuming. So so you've got really very conservative assumptions here about the break-even costs or the LCOE of these renewables. Right. All right. And then so finally then on the cost of capital, you've assumed 6% for onshore wind and solar and 10% for offshore wind. 10% for offshore. So for those of us who aren't maybe so steeped in the economics, how do those financing costs compare to something equivalent? And I don't know what's equivalent. Maybe it's the yield on a high-grade corporate bond or something like that. 
Yeah, exactly. Given the world of negative interest rates that we're living in now, <laughs> you know, globally, we've got, I think it's $17 trillion worth of debt out there that's yielding below zero. Again, it's similar to what you were saying about one of the reasons, I guess, that my break-even costs look a bit high compared with the numbers you were just giving. Maybe that I'm too conservative on the cost of capital. Hmm. Solar in Germany, you can certainly do well below 6%. Because the great thing about renewables is, I didn't go into this in the report, but while we're on the subject, you know, it's much less risky than new oil projects, right? Yeah. I mean, you don't have to go and explore for the energy. There's no ENP with renewables. And I think that's a factor that mm. a lot of people miss. You know, there is no upstream. Renewables is all about the midstream. You just build infrastructure and you capture energy. Right. You don't explore for it. You don't produce it. You capture right. it. And that means it's a very low risk source of energy. There's no risk of doing a dry haul, right? Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know where you get lots right. of sunshine. You know where the wind blows. You've typically got a 60-year history of data to refer to that right. gives you absolute exactly. assurance of what the resource is in a place. Right. right. So this is the great thing about it. So those costs of capital, I guess, were on the conservative side, particularly now the offshore one. There's no way that number you just gave, which is absolutely true and very fresh still, you know, the $50 per megawatt hour for the new offshore wind project off the northeast coast of the UK, that there's no way that you're factoring in a 10% cost of capital there. The price would be higher if you were. Mm. You know, this is what we see with developments of new technology, isn't it? You start to get economies of scale, the technology improves, and the risk associated with it falls, and therefore the cost of capital falls. Right. And the other thing to say about it, because it's lower risk, you can put a lot of debt into it. And that's very different from upstream oil operations. If you look at the oil majors, traditionally, they have very low levels of leverage. Mm. You know, there's a lot more equity financing goes in than debt financing mm. because it's a riskier business. Right. So they have to put a little more skin in the game. All right. So right. for all the renewables, then to just revisit this final assumption, you've assumed a 25-year operating life, which matches the warranties right. and the financing structures. It's very typical, yeah. very standard. But I also want to point out that that's also conservative. Even though that's standard and typical, that's conservative. A lot of these projects, certainly the solar ones, could produce maybe a bit less energy for a whole lot longer than 25 years. Really, for a solar project, you've got a declension of about a half a percent of nameplate in production per year. In theory, if the integrity of the solar module is maintained, a solar module could produce energy for 50 years, 75 years, even a trickle at 100 years, right? Right. And so, right. you know, for modeling purposes, fair enough. But on the whole, I think it's fair to say that you've used very conservative assumptions throughout here. And your findings could be underestimating the reality by 50% or more. I mean, for some of the better projects, you right. know, maybe instead of a solar powered yeah. EV competing with gasoline when oil is $35, maybe it's actually competitive with oil at $17 a barrel, which is why you've said that oil needs a long term break even of. 10 to $20 a barrel to remain competitive yep. in mobility. Yeah, exactly right, Chris. Really, I wanted to be conservative here because, you know, number one, when I ran these numbers, I was a bit skeptical myself at first. I thought, wow, I am I really saying that oil would have to fall to $10 for gasoline to be competitive? <laughs> and, you know, I had deliberately 
as you say, there was a part of me which said, I've been a sell-side analyst long enough. You know, I've been a sell-side analyst for nearly 25 years. So I know that when you go out to the market with numbers that are claiming a lot, you know, you have to be bulletproof yeah. in terms of the assumptions you've made. Yeah. And the last thing I wanted to do was to publish a report that showed just how competitive, more than competitive, renewable energy is already today with oil. The last thing I wanted to do was to go out there with numbers that people in the oil industry could turn around and say, ah, but yeah, you made an unrealistic assumption here, or this is far too optimistic. So I just thought, look, these numbers are giving me a sensational enough finding as it is. Mm. But yeah, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. On all the elements that you just went through, I think you could fairly say that I have been on the conservative side. And so this is to my point, really, that we've reached a moment in time here where the economics of renewables are are now becoming, indeed probably already have become, absolutely irresistible. Yeah. And as you say, there's no need to gild the lily when you've already reached these kinds of numbers. So, you know, this is why I suppose the subtitle of your report is The Death Toll for Petrol. And I very nice little bit of, as an English major myself, you know, I love that. The death toll for petrol. Well, I was nodding to Hemingway when I wrote that bit, right? (laughs) (laughs) You know, a carbon tracker also just has a very nice history of that, as you do, like in all of your reports, you know, there's always a little bit of a rhyme or a ring or a reference to to enjoy in there. You know, the marketplace for ideas (laughs) is a competitive one, and you've got to find a way of getting as many eyeballs as possible. You do, you really do. And that's one of the ways to do it. So this really is the death toll for petrol, the end of the petroleum age, as you've said. I mean, this is I think so. Clearly, as of transportation fuel, you've shown why transportation electrification has got to be inevitable at these prices. And frankly, I don't understand yeah. why the oil consultancies, you know, the IHSs and the Wood Mackenzies and the Rystads of the world yep. aren't ringing alarm bells all over the place after this report. I mean, how do you think your message yeah. has been received? Right. Well, I think as usual, and what I do very often these days is draw on my experience of having been a European utility analyst for the best part of 20 years. And so I lived through, I had a ringside seat at the impact that renewable energy has had on the European power sector over the last 10, 15 years. And it has been absolutely Mm. brutal. The market capitalization of the European utility industry is down by 50% over the last decade. In the case of the German utilities, they're down by 70 to 80%. And most of that is down to the impact of renewable energy. The reason the Germans got clobbered even more was because of the changes in nuclear policy in Germany. But, you know, most of the decline in the value of the European utility sector over the last 10 years is down to the impact of renewable energy. And it plays to what I was saying just a few minutes ago. That is this key point about renewable energy. Most of the cost is in the building of the infrastructure itself. There is a little bit that you have to spend on operating the projects over the lifetime, but most of it's in the capital costs. And the capital costs have been dropping like a stone over the last decade. And we've been getting better as we've scaled up in size. The technology improves. And so, I just think that the key lesson from the utility industry, there are many lessons, but I'd say the two key lessons are as follows. One is 
an economic come financial lesson and the other one is a psychological lesson to come back to your question, Chris. So in terms of the economics and the financial lesson, it is very difficult, if not impossible, for an established technology based on fossil fuels and in the case of electricity generation, for coal-fired power generation or gas-fired power generation, very difficult, nigh on impossible to compete with an energy source like renewables whose capital costs have been plummeting and which have a short-run marginal cost of zero, because that's the whole point. You're capturing energy, and when that energy is available, when the sun shines and the wind blows, the energy comes Mm. for free. So as the cost of the infrastructure falls over time, as it has been doing and as it will continue to do, it becomes harder and harder for the established fossil fuel technologies to compete. Now, that's kind of the obvious point. That's exactly what we've been hammering at for the last hour in this conversation. If we then come to the equally important psychological lesson that I have learned over the last decade, and this is directly in answer to your question about how is the message being received in the oil and gas industry, it is this. It is very difficult for established incumbents who have been making very handsome profits for decade after decade after decade doing things a certain way. It takes them a considerable amount of time to realize what is actually happening. And I've had many conversations over the last five years with oil executives saying, wait a minute, look what happened to the European power sector, look at the value destruction we've seen there, that's down to the impact of renewable energy, don't you worry that you're next in line and that you're going to face this same issue. And, And you get a number of different answers, all of which are part of a brick wall that has been constructed around the thinking of the oil industry. So I've heard variously over the last five years the following arguments. Number one, oh, of course, the electricity industry has been disrupted by renewables, but the oil and gas industry is totally different. (laughs) You can't get electrons to compete with liquid Mm, molecules mm. of energy. Well, guess what? With the rise of electric vehicles, you can't. So I think there are various other pretexts that are trotted out still by the oil and gas industry. To me, what is common to both of them and why the oil industry will now face exactly the same disruption that the power sector in Europe has faced over the last decade is this, that the biggest obstacle to any established industry changing the way it does things is holding on to the idea of the returns they can make in their industry. I heard this 15 years ago in the power industry. Or why would we invest in renewables when we can make a better return investing in new coal-fired power plants and new gas-fired power plants? Literally three months ago, I had a conversation with the CEO of a major European oil and gas major. And I made this point, look at what happened to the European power sector, you're next. And I was told, no, 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 you don't understand. We can make returns of 15 to 20% in upstream oil. And why are we going to invest money in new renewables projects where we can only make a 6 or 7% return? And my answer was, because your 15 to 20% return upstream is no longer going to be <laughs> right. there in the future. That's why. <laughs> it's all a bit whistling past the graveyard, isn't it? Completely. Yeah. Completely. And it's hard not to think of the old Upton Sinclair quote, right? It's right. difficult to right. get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. Exactly right. So just to address the real point of this, 
spear here is that light duty transportation vehicles or even transportation as a sector is not the totality of the oil business. No. So I want to address that as well because that gets to the CEO's point. Right. I mean, you do point out that light duty vehicles and other vehicles susceptible to electrification account for maybe 36% of the global demand for crude today. But I think that's a really kind of a wide boundary way to look at it because right. there's a lot of vehicles that are in the long run susceptible to electrification uh-huh. that are not actually on the market yet, sort of that class three to right. class eight vehicles that are still sort of to yeah. come. But if you look at the vehicles that are on the market now, the light duty passenger vehicles alone, I think that's really closer to 15% of global oil demand right now or somewhere in that neighborhood. Does that feel about the right number to you? I actually did a little research on it. It's not an easy number to pin down. Right. No, it's not an easy number to track down, but that sounds ballpark to me. I think even since I've published the report, again, and I was trying to be conservative here, I was saying, okay, we know gasoline is a very addressable market for electric vehicles. There's only 3% of passenger cars globally. That's 3% of global oil demand goes on diesel for passenger cars. And then it's really light duty vehicles as a further 9%. And then once you get beyond that, that 36%, and that's where I decided to draw the line in my report, you're getting into much heavier levels of transportation where until very recently, people have thought electrification above those levels is going to be very difficult. But in fact, even in the two and a half months since I published my report, I've read a number of articles saying that heavy trucks can be electrified. Oh, they're definitely coming. I think the most recent announcement was Class 8 from Volvo coming out sort of in the next year or two. Right, exactly. That's right. I saw that. I saw that piece, yeah. So to the point of your oil CEO, there's maybe 85% of global oil demand that's not going to be affected by the electrification of light-duty passenger vehicles. So maybe this isn't death for oil overall. But as vehicle electrification proceeds and that... 36% of demand ultimately dries up. Let's think about what effect that will have on the price of oil and on the other sectors besides transportation that use oil, right? Because this is where it gets very counterintuitive, I think, right? So on the one hand, you're going to have that declining picture of future demand on the margin, which has historically been enough to have outsized effects on the price of oil, to have outsized effects on the stock valuation of oil producers. It's a fickle investor community out there in many ways, right? Like as soon as they see that demand picture starting to fade, they're like, I'm out of here. Besides that, the XLE hasn't done shit for a couple of years. Who cares about this sector? Let's put our money into something else. So the rug can be pulled out from under the oil producers on the investing side, I think, pretty quickly. And that can be in response to what seems like very marginal changes in demand. So that's, I think, the first point. I wonder if you want to comment on that. Right. Right. Well, and I mean, the marginal point is very well taken. Again, if you look at, I'll just address that very simply with one startling statistic, I think, from the German power industry. If you go back to 2006, 2006 is the year in which conventional power generation in Germany peaked. By conventional power generation, I mean coal, gas and nuclear. Okay. Electricity output from those three sources peaked in 2006 and has been declining ever since. And in that year, 2006, wind and solar accounted for only 5% of total electricity production 
in Germany. But ever since 2006, wind and solar have taken 100%, and in some years more than 100%, of the growth in the market. And what that tells you is the marginal rate of change is much more important than the overall system level of demand to determining how investors look at this, because the startling point is that the share prices of the German electricity producers really started to tank once it became clear to the market that conventional power generation Mm. had peaked and all the growth henceforth was going to be in wind and solar. So if you were looking at the overall system level contribution, you would have said, well, wind and solar only account for 5% of the market. It's nothing. We can afford to ignore that. But they were taking 100% of the growth and markets price growth. That's the key point. And in the same way, I think this is when you're looking at the oil market, let's say 50% of global oil demand is for road transportation. I said that 36% of it is for the part of global oil demand that is very clearly already readily addressable with electrification. And other parts of that 50% will subsequently be addressable probably within a much nearer time horizon than most of us think possible today. But to your point then about which other parts of global oil demand are vulnerable? I mean, not necessarily vulnerable to electrification, but which are vulnerable for other reasons. The other big talking point of the oil industry, I mentioned earlier that the industry has built this wall around itself of excuses or pretexts for swatting away the idea that global oil demand is not going to be subject to the same issues as conventional power generation. So one of the big talking points has been, but we're going to see continuing very rapid growth in petrochemical demand. And again, what's happened in the last two years, one of the biggest stories in the global energy and the global manufacturing industry is the growing hostility towards plastic Hmm. as a product. This is a major problem for the petroleum industry because that's one of the biggest sources of growth. Petrochemicals typically over the last two years has been used as a way of deflecting concerns about the outlook for oil demand. Transportation. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Obviously, I didn't go into that argument at all in my report. But if you were going through all the other segments of oil demand and where we might see growth that could compensate for the reduction in demand that I think we're now inevitably going to see from the electrification of transport, then petrochemicals would have been one of, if not the key area. And yet, in the last two years, you've seen this huge and very rapid and still growing war on plastic, which I think in many ways is only just getting started. I I think it's almost a certainty that you're going to see much more legislation around the world to stop single-use plastic and wherever possible not to use plastic at all. So I would say that the oil industry is facing challenges from many different fronts now. And, you know, there's obviously legal issues that challenge the oil industry as well, particularly in the US with some of the legal cases that have been brought around what the oil industry knew about climate change and why it didn't act earlier. And in fact, why (laughs) why it lobbied to Mm. prevent action earlier. So if you look at the charge seat from an investor point of view, I mean, I always bring it back to what do investors think about this? If you look at the pros and cons of the oil industry as a long-term investment today, then you're looking at some very significant headwinds 
And against that, you're saying, well, this is an established industry. It's been around for a long time. It's got a huge amount of capital invested. And if nothing else, they're still paying a decent dividend. And so I can get a 6% dividend yield investing in oil majors in a negative interest rate environment. That still looks like a good deal. It may look good today. To me, as I mentioned earlier, If I were an oil major executive, the thing that would worry me most is the divergence you're now seeing between the automotive industry's vision of the future and the oil industry's vision of the future. Yeah, exactly. So this becomes an even more complex picture then, right? Because not only do oil majors now need to start thinking about, well, what does this do to our ability to raise capital? What does this do to our ability to continue projecting a future of robust demand? Right. But also, it starts to tell those who trade oil there's less demand here. And so that puts downward pressure on the price of oil because demand for it is slowly going away. And the lower the price of oil is, the lower the profit or revenue expectations of the oil majors can be, which further reduces their ability to do E&P, right? Right. And so as you move on into this more and more uncertain future, you start becoming less and less able to make those investment decisions that require you to commit for a period of 20 or 25 years, several billion dollars, maybe $10 billion or more, for example, in some big deep water project or exploring in the Arctic or whatever the case may be. And that means that ultimately that long range supply is also starting to dry up before it's even begun, right? Right. (laughs) Which in itself could cause the price of oil to go up, right? And so to me, this is a really, really interesting question as to where does the price of oil go from here in light of your findings and what effect will that have? Because if prices remain low, you could see potentially a case where ICE vehicles stay a little more competitive for a little longer than they would have. But if oil prices go back up, that just kills them. Absolutely. I remember you and I have discussed this point before, right? I mean, if oil prices were still above $100 a barrel, imagine how much more impetus there would be to move as quickly as possible exactly. away from oil. If the general consensus was that we're in a permanent $100 plus per barrel oil environment, I think this would be happening even more quickly. So I think you make a really good point there, Chris. And in fact, I'm just, as we've been discussing here, I just saw a feed here, a Twitter comment, and you've probably seen this, but again, it's typical of how quickly this debate is moving, Mm. that Senator Chuck Schumer on Thursday has proposed a $454 billion plan over 10 years to help shift the United States away from gasoline-powered vehicles by offering cash vouchers to help Americans buy cleaner vehicles, i.e. EVs. I, I mean, saw that, yeah. These are the kinds of things that, that uh, you <laughs> Just know, out two of left years field ago, and that all would have been sudden, dismissed. Right, totally. Boom. Totally, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> and so the other big lesson from my experience of covering the European power sector over the last 15 years is that, as I said earlier, once things start to move, they can move much quicker than anybody thinks possible. So to go back to my point... I mentioned just a few moments ago, in 2006, wind and solar accounted for only 5% of German electricity production. Today, we are at 35%. So they've increased seven times, sevenfold, 
in less than 15 years. And I can guarantee to you, because I was there and I know what people were discussing and what people were saying, if you'd said to anybody in 2005, 2006, before 2020, wind and solar will account for getting on for 40% of German electricity production, Mm. everybody would have thought you were crazy. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, everybody said the grid was going to fall over at 10% penetration. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) That was another talking point. Right, right. That was part of the wall that the electricity industry had built around itself, right? I mean, I mentioned the oil industry having this wall built around its thinking. That was one of the main talking points of the established electricity companies at the time. You know, the others being they'll never be economic. They're always going to cost too much. They're going to need subsidies forever. There's going to be a political backlash against that at some point. I mean, we've gone through every single conceivable excuse and they've all proven to, well, they just haven't held up. And why? Because in both cases, on the oil side and on the electricity side, you have incumbents who own assets that they expect to operate for decades, right? Right. And they are counting on that. That's the fundamentals of their balance sheet. And they thought that was money in the bank. Right. And so I think the awareness of this risk should be ringing around not just utility executive boardrooms right now, but the boardrooms of the oil majors. I mean, you have to believe they're taking a very hard look at their next prospects right now. You have to believe they're saying, you know what, maybe we're not going to commit to that Arctic project. Maybe we're not going to commit to that next deep water project. Right. Well, I mean, if they're acting responsibly in the long-term interests of the shareholders, that's absolutely what they should be doing. I would say this as well. For the European power companies, they at least had the excuse that this had never happened before, right? You can't think of an industry globally that was as well capitalized, as well politically connected, and had traditionally enjoyed very large barriers to entry Mm. as the electricity industry, having been disrupted in such a short space of time by a new technology. So there is, even with the benefit of hindsight, you can look back and say, well, these were all the things they got wrong, and they did. But the one thing you would have to say is, we hadn't really ever seen that before. Mm. Such a well-capitalized, well-connected, oligopolistic industry structure disrupted in such a short space of time. Now, the oil industry doesn't have that excuse. The oil industry, I've been pointing it out, many other people have been pointing it out. Hey, look, here's another industry that's very deeply capitalized, very well connected politically, also enjoyed high barriers to entry traditionally. Watch out, you know, it's happened before, you could be next. And that's why I said earlier, you probably still do get the argument from oil industry executives, oh, yeah, but that's different. Electrons don't compete against liquid molecules of energy. Well, guess what? They do now. That's the whole point of electric vehicles. They allow a fungibility between Mm. electrons and molecules. And this is not going to stop. In fact, it's only going to accelerate. That's the point, right? What you get is what I call a virtuous feedback loop where you get a virtuous circle between policy and technology. And now the other two things that you've got as major actors in this equation, which compound the impact of policy and technology, are on the one hand, investors who've lost their shirts in the European power sector over the last 10 years. And the last thing they want to do is lose their shirts again on the oil and gas industry over the next 10 years. So you've got investor pressure on oil companies, both for 
climate change reasons and for financial return reasons, saying, hey, let's be careful here now. Let's think about your capex and where it's going. So that's going to really impact the technology solutions of the future because that's going to help guide the capex of these oil and gas companies. And then on the other hand, you've got growing societal concern over climate change. I mean, just in the last year, the whole greater Thunberg effect and the mm. galvanization of society globally on climate change, that pressure is only going to increase as well. And that informs the policy part of the equation. So right. the policy and technology feedback loop is only going to intensify and accelerate over the next decade. So if anything, the oil industry is going to face an even more fast-moving circle. That stone is rolling down the hill at an increasingly <laughs> fast pace, you know. Exactly. And it's easy to, especially at this particular moment in time, to sort of despair on the policy side because the right wing in this country is owned by the oil industry, essentially. And they're doing everything that they can to buttress the fossil fuel industry and to fend off any further incursion from energy transition. And it seems like it's an impenetrable wall, but it's not. They're actually extremely vulnerable and things could turn in a heartbeat, just like they did for the utility industry. Right. The thing is, and to me, this is the biggest change of all in the last five years. You can hold out and hold out against renewables with the one last line of defense for so long was, ah, but this renewable energy is only competitive because of the subsidies and the subsidies right. won't last forever. But you can't even make that argument anymore. And that, again, to my nope. point in the report, Not when you've got offshore wind in the UK for $50 a megawatt hour unsubsidized. In fact, right. under the contracts for difference regime, they would actually have to pay right. the government for right. being exactly. too cheap. Right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. So we've reached this point where every single argument, and the most important of all being the economic argument, have fallen away. Yeah. And this is my point about the irresistibility of it. You cannot compete with renewable energy anymore no. as an incumbent fossil fuel producer. Renewables are fundamentally different from fossil fuels. We talked about some of the differences earlier in the show. The fact that there's no upstream, there's only a midstream effectively, and you're capturing energy rather than exploring and producing it. And so what that leads you to is the next conclusion and the really fundamental difference is that renewable energy is inherently deflationary, Yes. whereas fossil fuel energy is inherently inflationary because by definition, you exploit the easiest to access resources first. So over time, you're forced to go off into locations that are harder and harder to access, more expensive. And as you and I have discussed in a different context before, and as everybody who follows the oil industry knows, in oil, it's always a battle between geology and technology, but the geology only ever gets more difficult, right? Because you've, right. you've gone to all the easy to access places. So that's a fundamental difference that I think most investors and certainly most policymakers haven't fully appreciated yet that we're talking about a fundamentally different kind of energy that is not only different from fossil fuels. I mean, it goes against everything we've been taught as students of economics for the last 200 years, right? Yeah. This is deflationary. Part four. 
This is an excerpt from episode 108, in which we talk with Kingsmill Bond, a financial and energy strategist. He shares his perspective that this energy transition will be much faster than the energy transitions of the past, driven by factors like increasingly intensifying carbon pricing, the growing risk of stranded assets, and the changing mindsets of investors as the energy transition proceeds. You know, I've heard about carbon taxation or carbon pricing of one form or another for, what, 15 years now? But it still doesn't effectively exist in the U.S., except for in California and the regional greenhouse gas initiative in the Northeast. The U.K. does have a carbon price, and in fact, we had your erstwhile colleague from Carbon Tracker, Mark Lewis, on the show back in episode 76 to talk about how the EU is fixing its system for trading carbon emissions allowances and how those allowances have actually become one of the best-performing financial instruments, which is quite amazing, really. But as I think about the question of carbon taxes, it seems to me that it is very much a gradualist view of how things will change. And in fact, what we've seen in the real world, what has actually happened, is that renewables are running away with market share in the complete absence of carbon pricing in most cases. Yeah, look, I think we are confident at Carbon Tracker that the the speed of technological evolution of renewable energy technologies is fast enough to drive a transition if we had it all the time in the world. However, of course, many people believe, including ourselves, that we don't. And this is why we talk quite a lot about the likelihood of policymakers ratcheting up change during the 2020s, both as a result of Paris and as a result of greater evidence of physical risks. But I hear what you're saying that you don't want to be talking about some pie-in-the-sky, unachievable numbers. I think in these two scenarios, what is very, very achievable is all of the renewable energy forecasts that people are talking about in the rapid energy transition. This argument about governments stepping up to the plate and take action would require humanity to decide it doesn't want to run into the brick wall. I mean, I personally think that that's quite likely, but <laughs> of course, as you say, evidence would suggest that so far, <laughs> people don't seem to think like that. But I think we're confident that actually, there's another very good reason why people should implement carbon taxation, which is simply that it drives some of the less efficient, less effective technologies to reform themselves. And it helps to give you an economic and industrial advantage. And this, of course, is one reason why it's the Scandinavian countries which have been creating global champions like Orsted or Vestas. And I think we'll see people embracing that in the future. Yeah. Well, you know, the report makes a point of highlighting when the two narratives see the peak demand for fossil fuels occurring, as you mentioned a moment ago, and the gradualists see it happening around 2040 or later, while the rapid transitionistas see it happening as much as two decades sooner, like in the 2020s. So I think if the gradualists are right, then that's clearly bad news for the climate. But also, it's kind of a yawner of a story, really, for markets and corporate leadership and investors. So what's the risk if the rapid transitionistas are right? So the risk for incumbents and markets, if the rapid narrative does play out, is that they're left with stranded assets and stranded business models. And investors will sell out long before most management teams can actually react and transition their businesses. And this point 
that we make, again, is not theory, but something we've seen already play out in the last 10 years, sector after sector. So you first of all had what happened to the European electricity sector after demand for fossil fuels in European electricity peaks in 2007. You get a share price collapse, and then you get no bounce back, and then you have 150 billion dollars write-downs and the breakup of many of the companies and the defenestration of the management teams. And then you actually see something quite similar happening in the coal sector, where, of course, half the US coal sector famously went into bankruptcy just three years after peak global coal demand in 2016. And now we're seeing something similar happen in the auto sector, where we would suggest that the Volkswagen scandal was linked to their attempts to postpone the evil day of the energy transition. Then you'd think about what happened to GE only in 2018. And now as our 2019 example, we're talking a lot about what's happening to the EMP sector in oil. So mm. I emphasize what's more, this is not some theoretical potential long-term problem, which isn't going to happen for 20 years. It's surrounding us right now. It's impacting companies and markets and portfolios. And, and quite frankly, people who understand this are beginning to make a killing out of shorting the losers. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Having a little bit of an edge in this domain really, I think, consists of seeing what's coming and not driving by the rearview mirror. That's why possibly one of the most interesting and unexpected developments is hedge funds who are at the cutting edge of change. And I was at the climate marches a couple of weeks ago chatting to people, and there's this guy who was walking past with a big billboard saying, it's the people against the evil fossil fuel companies and the hedge funds and so on and so forth. And, and I went up to him and I said, actually, you know what? The hedge funds are about to switch to your side of the fence mm. because you know, in Lenin's famous quote, the capitalists will make the rope with which we hang them. I don't know if it's quite the message I want to send, but the point simply <laughs> is that capitalism actually has the ability to cure itself. Right. And maybe this is an also quite an interesting point, which is that we have this very obvious giant externality in fossil fuels, which kills a lot of people and creates all kinds of problems, particularly for the poor. And we have these cartels which maintain high prices and generate super profits for a small number of people. That's not really a very capitalist thing to have. I mean, if we're true to the desire to have a well-functioning free market, actually, we should be encouraging change. Yeah. Well, you know, I think it makes perfect sense that the financial markets would be ahead of everyone in the policy and government space. They get paid for being right, not for being ideological. And that seems to make all the difference. And, you know, I must say, especially given that Carbon Tracker clearly has a very distinct point of view about this and has been out there warning about stranded assets and highlighting the unexpectedly rapid pace of energy transition for quite a few years now. You and your co-authors on this paper provide really quite an even-handed presentation of the two narratives all in all, I think. You don't really claim that one or another is more likely. Even on some of the deeper questions you delve into, like what to expect from technological progress or policy options or some of the key milestones to watch out for, you simply lay out the expectations for each narrative and just leave it there on the table, which ultimately leaves us with a lot more questions than answers, I think. So why did you and your co-authors choose to present the data in this way? And what is your personal view on how all this plays out? So I think 
the reason we presented it like this is because you know we like like our readers i guess seek to be rational in our approach and we seek to present the facts as we see them on both sides of the debate and it's also worth saying that nobody can forecast the future with perfect accuracy as you know energy predictions are very poor track record the the second reason was that we wanted to make it clear that actually most incumbents are clumping together in the same story but there is an alternative potentially more accurate out there and we wanted I suppose, readers to make up their minds, which of the two is more likely. My personal view is pretty factual. We have been seeing rapid cost falls and rapid growth of new energy technologies now for decades, as you pointed out. We've just got to the point where these energy technologies are undoubtedly cheaper than fossil fuels at the leading edge. And every indication now is that this rapid shift will continue. So, for me, the balance of probability is that this rapid transition will indeed continue. You would need something very powerful to stop it. And when people say to me, well, this transition is going to get stopped because of current US policy or because of the negative impact it has on birds or worms or whatever it is, you sort of say, well, Many bridges have already been crossed. There are very, very powerful forces driving this. And above all, the driver of energy demand growth is actually the emerging markets, not the US. So what you really need to be asking is, why would the governments of India and China not adopt a cleaner, cheaper local technology? Well, indeed. Why wouldn't they? Especially if they had the choice. I mean, having interviewed now a number of people that come out of the world of, you know, foreign development aid and direct foreign investment and that sort of thing, it seems that some of the biggest impediments to allowing these developing countries to leapfrog over the fossil fuel stage and just reach straight for renewables is that the kind of foreign aid and development investment on offer to them is specifically earmarked for fossil fuel and nuclear projects. And that's, I think, a real issue here. If there were just some sort of an international giant pot of money available for development, and it was up to individuals in these development countries to choose which technologies they want to invest in to power their development, I think they would choose the cheapest ones. Well, actually, it's very interesting you should make this point because there, of course, is an enormous international pot of money for development, and it's called the free market at the behest of the many excellent developers out there. And what both governments and developers tell us is they say, look, the problem is not money. The problem is having good quality projects and a good legislative environment. So you have organisations such as IRENA, the International Renewable Energy Agency, which is now specifically going country to country, educating people as to how they can set up auction structures in order to provide an environment which brings in these international developers with their pots of money hmm. in order to provide them with cheaper energy. So again, interestingly, amazingly, you have a situation here where there are free market solutions. Now, of course, I'm not so naive as to imagine that can happen everywhere. If you're very high-risk countries with very problematic governments, then of course you need superior different solutions. But in quite a number of locations, there are ways to solve this and it is being solved. This is sort of a diversion, but I can't help myself. 
we've talked in previous episodes of the show about some of these more innovative techniques and methods that are allowing very small investments to be bankable and investable, right? So we're looking at like the, what's it called? M-Pesa, the mobile payment system. Fantastic M-Pesa, yeah, in Kenya. Yeah. We're talking about these microfinance approaches to deploying tiny little solar projects on off-grid homes in places like sub-Saharan Africa. We're talking about, you know, how do you pay for a solar lantern by amortizing against what kerosene would have cost over the period of a couple of months, right? Like really small amounts of money. But if you can make it bankable somehow, if you can assure that the buyer is creditworthy, if you can structure a project so that on a technical and a financial basis, it looks bankable and legitimate to a finance company, even if it's only $100,000 or $50,000, that that can really have a transformative effect on the developing world. And I wonder, like, from your perspective, being closely connected to the finance community, how do you see that aspect of all this evolving? I think that the glory, of course, of renewables is that, of course, they're everywhere. And they are very, as it were, democratic. They allow many people to exploit them in many different ways and come up with different solutions. So one of the issues that is very hard for model, be you a rapid or a gradual modeler, is what human innovation will do, how people will figure out new ways to use these technologies. And I think that we've only just scratched the surface of what can be done. I mean, MPES is an amazing example. Who would have thought of that 10 years ago? Right. But there are many other areas. So from putting solar panels behind dams because it cools them down, the space is free to putting them on lakes and all the rest of it. I mean, these are ideas which is very hard to forecast. And as the costs continue to fall and new opportunities materialize, I suspect we'll find new routes to growth. So for me, another reason to remain optimistic because of human ingenuity. I think of this particular example because the gradualist point of view always held that people in these remote regions that are not connected to the grid, particularly in impoverished parts like sub-Saharan Africa, would always remain in energy poverty until you could get this grand scheme in place where the national government and oftentimes the nationally owned electricity company would actually expand the full grid out to reach these people. And it was going to take decades and we were going to have to build these big power plants to do it. And it was going to take millions of dollars to fund these new projects and so on. Whereas in reality, what's happened is just these little innovations, leveraging the power of a cell phone, are now making it possible to, with very small investments in a highly distributed way, in the absence of a centralized grid, lifting these people out of energy poverty. And that is very much a rapid transition phenomenon. It is. And I think there's a kind of circular factors which will tend to make it happen faster, virtuous circle factors. So as people have greater purchasing power and are spending less time gathering firewood. So they have the ability to do more and more efficiently, and it leads to more rapid rises of middle classes in some of these desperately poor countries. And lifting people out of poverty is a very noble thing to do. So what can we learn from these contrasting narratives? I mean, obviously, I think any listener to this show would favor the rapid transition point of view. But 
how can these narratives inform our actions? Like if we shifted our stance from a gradualist one to one that anticipates a rapid transition, what would we do differently? And particularly, I think, given your background, I'd be interested in, you know, what would you think the financial community will do differently? (laughs) Well, I think starting with the wider question, then moving on to financial community, if you really think this is a technology shift, then it makes sense to do three things. First of all, to lead the shift. So, in the United States, don't be leapfrogged by China. Secondly, to prepare for the new environment. So don't tell people their jobs are safe when they're not. Retrain them and make communities ready for the world that's coming. And then thirdly, get ready for a new geopolitical reality of considerably weaker petrostates. And that's a a message I guess we've been writing about for some time, but it, it's the corollary of shifting away from fossil fuels and the fossil fuel rents. As for the financial markets, we tend to say there's really three approaches that you can take. <laughs> Sorry to be talking about threes again, but anyway, <laughs> the first approach is to get your portfolio out of the areas which are most vulnerable to the transition. So get it out of fossil fuels, not because it's the right thing to do or the moral thing to do, but just because you don't lose money. And there are plenty of ways of doing that. The second thing to do is to start investing in some of these really neat companies which are building the new world. I mean, there's huge amounts of growth to come, not just solar and wind and cars and EVs and batteries and hydrogen. It's all of the technology surrounding them, from smart grids to smart meters, software and all the rest of it. There's huge amounts of growth out there. But actually, the approach that I like best is to copy Warren Buffett and, in his immortal words, shoot the horse rather than buy the car. That is to say, (laughs) it's very hard to figure out the winners. It's quite easy to figure out the losers. Mm. You know, it's the people who've got the highest cost assets, the dumbest management teams, the lowest margins, the dirtiest stuff. They just don't have a future and you can short them and make money out of it. It sounds so simple when you put it like that. But you know, you pick up the Financial Times any given day, it doesn't look that simple. There's a few hedge funds now doing it. And yeah, it's not easy. It never is. But the opportunities are there for sure. Well, before I let you go, I have to ask you about the current work at Carbon Tracker. As I mentioned earlier, I've been a huge fan of their work since their inception, really. And I'll put some links in the show notes to a few articles I wrote about their first reports back in the day. And as I mentioned, we've had Mark Lewis, a Carbon Tracker alum, among other things, on the show twice in episodes 6 and 76. But for those who aren't familiar with Carbon Tracker's work, and particularly its efforts to get the investment community focused on the risks of stranded assets, why don't you leave us with a quick overview of some of those key messages and maybe peek at some of the current work underway there? So in terms of key messages, the key message is that the energy transition will have a dramatic impact on incumbents in the decade to come. The risks are much higher than they appear, and most incumbent fossil fuel companies will struggle to make it through the decade. The other message is that the opportunity to build a new world of cheaper, superior energy is also here, and there are many, many companies and many ways to do that. In terms of what we're now doing in Carbon Tracker, well, (laughs) as ever, many things, but We're working on a report looking at the impact of the war on plastics on oil demand. As you will recall, rising demand for petrochemicals, or indeed specifically plastics, is meant to be accounting for half of the growth in oil demand over the next 20 years. And we think that the war on plastics means that that's easy to question, shall we say. My colleague Matt Gray is in Japan right now talking to the government about 
how sticking with coal is a good way to lose money. And we're now starting to look at some of the negative feedback loops which accompanied this transition. So as the tide goes out, you are left with cleanup costs for coal-fired power stations, which you have to switch off. Who's going to pay for that? And that, of course, in and of itself tends to speed up the transition. Anyway, so we're looking at quite a few things at the moment and happy to share those with your listeners. Yeah, I think we'd be fascinated to hear. So I noted, in fact, that there was a recent report from Carbon Tracker saying that there's some $71 billion of Japanese coal assets at risk from cheaper renewables. Can you talk about that at all? So this is indeed what Matt's currently in Tokyo talking about. The point simply here is that if you're sitting on very large amounts of fossil fuel assets where the cost over time of the raw material is tending to rise and you're competing with renewables where the cost over time is on these very clear technology learning curves, you get all of these cost tipping points. You know, the first cost tipping point is where it's cheaper to put up a solar panel than to put up a coal-fired power station. We're basically there in every country in the world, <laughs> apart from Japan. We'll be there in Japan in a couple of years' time. But then the second tipping point that Matt's now talking about is when it actually gets cheaper to put up a new solar panel or a new offshore wind turbine than it does to run an existing coal-fired power station, an existing gas-fired power station. And from his calculation, that will happen in Japan in the mid-2020s. At that point, the regulator, the owners of these coal-fired assets will find that they're just losing money compared to superior alternative. Of course, this is not news to your listeners in the United States. That's already been happening for some time now in America. Yeah. Right. But also, oftentimes, what we really hear about in America with respect to places like Japan, you know, the main narrative that we hear, I would say, is that, oh, they had to shut down their nuclear fleet because of Fukushima, and they turned to coal instead. And guess what? Their emissions went up 25% or whatever the number was. And that's kind of the end of the story that we hear. And I think that's not really the story that we should be thinking about, as your report indicates. Yeah. And it ultimately goes back to whether or not you think in a static manner on cost today, or you think in a dynamic manner about how costs are evolving. And really, that encapsulates many aspects of the way we're looking at the world differently. We just can see falling costs, particularly in areas like offshore wind. Mm. That's talking about Japan, because obviously there's space problems, we understand that, and there are issues. But as these new technologies continue to fall in cost, a great example is the United Kingdom, where the cost of offshore wind in three years has fallen from about £120 per megawatt hour to £40 two weeks ago yeah. per megawatt hour. I mean, that's quite an impressive learning curve. And, and that's what happens when you bring to bear the expertise of some of these global developers in a decent policy regime. And as you do that, it's a little bit like water going downhill. It finds a way. Superior costs ultimately find a way to get through and drive change. And I think the 2020 is going to be all about that. The water running downhill in unexpected ways, driving a few landslides here and there, driving some surprises, but nevertheless getting down the hill. Yeah. Well, you know, now that you mentioned that, I'll ask you a question that I was a little puzzled by. In the last episode of the show, I was researching this this startling decrease in costs for offshore wind in the UK and trying to understand how that plays into the contract for difference regime in the UK. So 
it looks to me like this sort of $40 a megawatt hour is going to be below the government's set price for the market. And so under the contracts for difference regime, the wind developer would actually pay the government the difference. Is that really going to happen here? Before I go further, I should say it's pounds, not dollars. The Sorry, pounds yes. soak a long way, but it's not yet a parity. It's right. getting there. Maybe be there within two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, because Brexit, uh, well, Halloween is right around the corner, isn't it? Uh, oh, yeah, my. Yeah, anyway, anyway, sorry. Yeah. We're not talking about that particular <laughs> issue, but actually, I must admit, I'm not an expert on oh, exactly how CFD works, whether or not they're going to end up paying the government. I guess the point is that they're now down at a price where it doesn't need subsidy yeah. anymore. And people often say, well, you know, it is subsidy because it's a long price for whatever it's 25 years. It's not a spot price. But actually, think about bond markets. You don't have all of your money on overnight rates. You know, you borrow and lend at 20 years as well. So I think we would see this as an analogous situation. Yeah. Well, Mr. Bond, speaking to us about bond markets, how do you feel about the movies? <laughs> but, sorry, the, <laughs> the, the movies. The James Bond movies. Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, great, great, excellent. Yeah, they're very good. We enjoy watching them. How many people call you 007? <laughs> no, you're the first, for sure. <laughs> Do you have a favorite? Do you have a favorite James Bond movie? Oh, crikey. I like the Russian ones. Oh, okay. Uh, I like the Russian ones. That was a simpler era, wasn't it? Yeah. Where we knew the difference between good and bad. Oh, my goodness, yes. It almost looks like an anachronism now, doesn't it, given the current political context? Oh, my goodness. Well, Kingsmill, this has just been such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for taking the time, sharing your perspective on all this stuff. I think this really is an interesting report, at least for those who are willing to approach the question of energy transition and how it proceeds with with an open mind and recognizing that there are valid perspectives to some extent in both views, both the gradualist and the rapid view. I think you did a nice job of kind of laying out how those differences translate into the vision for what the world looks like in 2040, 2050. And, and to that extent, I think it's really useful because as the evidence continues to mount that climate change is a very urgent problem and getting more urgent all the time, and as the world has finally started to focus its attention on the idea that we have to have emissions go to zero essentially by 2050 or whatever your preferred framework is, we really have to take a very close look at these gradualist views and ask ourselves if those are going to get us where we need to go. Yeah, I think that's very well put. Part 5. This final excerpt is from episode 129, where we talk with Jeffrey Sachs, a professor, author, educator, and leader in sustainable development. We discuss how the energy transition is affordable, the effects it will have on various industries, the jobs it will create, its overall effect on the global economy, and how the vision of the Green New Deal compares to Roosevelt's New Deal. You know, I just want to briefly reinforce this affordability point, because I don't think that most people have really seen, first of all, much in the way of published research about what this transformation is really going to cost. That's one of the reasons I'm excited about this work that we're talking about today and why we're going to do a whole nother episode with one of the modelers on it in the near future. But going back to this point that the energy transition could cost the U.S. economy 1% of GDP or, or maybe it's even 2%. So you're an economist. You understand the macro picture of what stuff costs in the U.S. economy. Can you put this into some context for us? Like, how does that 1% or 2% relate to what we already spend on energy or some other meaningful context? 
Well, I think the most important context is it's 1% of what we spend on everything. So in other words, utterly manageable, especially when it's a matter of survival. And as I say, for a substantial part of the transformation, it's probably zero. You get cleaner air, you get a safer environment, you get a better drive, you get a better overall environment at no extra cost retail. And so it's a fantastic bargain. And that's, by the way, why it is happening in Texas, for example, huge deployment of wind power, now increasing deployment of solar power. That's the oil state of our country. But because it's a good value, it's a good bargain, the investments are taking place irrespective of purported ideology or politics. We'll see the same thing in the Midwest, where there's a tremendous amount of wind that is high quality, low cost to develop at grid parity or below with coal also produced in that region. And the wind is just going to outcompete these other sectors. And we're seeing that in the Dakotas and in other places as well. When the feds come in to help build an interstate, long distance transmission grid, especially high voltage direct current grid, probably at a cost of, oh, 80 to $200 billion, less than 1% of GDP to build the capital. That's not per year, that's for the new grid. We're gonna see an even accelerated development of some of these pockets of very, very high quality energy. What has happened in the debate is confusion, unfortunately. Those who have been urging climate action have often gone with what I regard as kind of gimmicky magic solutions, which aren't magic to the listeners, like we need a carbon tax, that's all we need, or we need a cap and dividend or some single mechanism, which doesn't sound very attractive to people. Oh, you're going to raise my electricity price and so forth. Whereas I believe that what we need to do is spell out the pathway. What does it really mean for people? to have this transformation. And by putting it much more clearly, I believe, in terms of here's where your electricity is going to be generated. Most people don't really care as long as the light switch goes on. Here is the kind of car you're going to drive. Here is the kind of housing you're going to be living in in the future. And this is going to be a good deal for you. I think we're going to go a lot farther than just jumping to something like tax and dividend or carbon tax or some other single policy, which I also don't even regard as that central to making the transformation work, but also I find to be a kind of political loser because it doesn't clarify that this is an excellent deal and you can understand it's an excellent deal by focusing in on the specifics that are involved, for example, shifting to electric vehicles, more and more people understand really what that's about. And when they understand it, and they understand that the cost of these vehicles is coming down to the costs of what they have long known, and indeed the 
operating costs over a 10 or 15 year period, therefore also the resale costs of these vehicles will be improved, we're going to see the understanding rise significantly and I think the political obstacles disappear. People probably also are taking note of the fact that even in the most pro-fossil fuel administration imaginable, I think Trump outdoes even George W. Bush Jr. on this one. And Cheney, it's, it's impossible to even conceive that, but this administration has done anything and everything possible to prolong the past. In this sense, it's, in my view, literally the most reactionary administration we've ever had. It's still the case that the fossil fuel sector is closing down. It's just not economical. They can't survive. They can't compete. The largest fracking companies closing down, going bankrupt. The oil industry shrinking. The pipelines being canceled here and there for economic reasons, not only for the opposition of local communities. I think the economics is going to take us there. Yeah, absolutely. And as you say, the Trump administration has been an excellent servant for the oil and gas and coal industries, but it's just not able to overcome the fundamental influence of economics. And I appreciate you reinforcing this point that, as the old saw goes, there isn't a silver bullet solution. There's only silver buckshot. There's like all these different little things that add up to the full solution strategy. But, you know, getting back to this point on the affordability, I want to keep hammering away at this because I don't think it's well appreciated that, like, even in the modeling that we're talking about here, total spending on energy declines from around 5% of GDP today to around 4% in 2050. And that's because the influence of renewables is fundamentally deflationary on energy costs, right? Yeah, I was going to say that the technologies are improving so much and we will see further significant improvements in photovoltaics, for example, better materials, better balance of systems, more efficiency of the grid. We're going to see very significant reductions of costs, which have already come down from 20 years ago by factor 100, by two orders of magnitude, but they're going to continue to fall. We're seeing the same happening, not quite as dramatically with wind power, but we're going to see tremendous declines of wind power costs, also much bigger turbines and ability to place them offshore and in other convenient locations. We're seeing huge improvements in the ability of long-distance, low-loss transmission. For example, the high-voltage direct current transmission systems. We're seeing much, much smarter appliances and smarter grids. 5G will enable a vastly more efficient system. When we go to electric vehicles, and especially if we go to autonomous vehicles or platooned autonomous trucking, which is already technologically in the works, the engineers have explained to me how if you don't have to put a driver in the cab, and it's already feasible in a platooned trucking technology for our interstates, you can strip down the costs and the weight and the materials and the vulnerabilities of a modern heavy-duty freight truck phenomenally so that it is lighter, simpler, much lower cost, 
because you're not having to heat and cool and keep safe and provide all sorts of meters and other things in the cab for the driver. So once we really get into this, combining artificial intelligence, smart systems, e-commerce, better logistics, autonomous vehicles, and so on, we have a chance to have improvements of productivity that are absolutely astounding. It's only if we just live in the past that we're not going to be enjoying that. And then, of course, it would be a double whammy to the United States because the rest of the world's going to move. So we'll not only lose the benefits of these advanced technologies here, but we'll absolutely wipe out our international competitiveness. And conversely, assuming that we do proceed with the transition, we're going to find that we're essentially replacing these expensive fossil fuels with much cheaper renewables. And so that will ultimately reduce the total spending on energy that the U.S. economy has to put out, right? Exactly correct. You know, when you are in the renewable energy business, (laughs) we've got about 5,000 times more incoming solar radiation than our power use in the world. We've got a lot of resource to tap. That comes free. Our costs are the capital costs of photovoltaics itself. And that's what's getting better and better. PV solar cells that capture a higher proportion of the sunshine, new advanced nanotechnologies to make those new and improved solar cells. Every week when you open the issues of science or nature, there are articles on the new technologies for different photovoltaic architectures, for better batteries. You can see actually these days really week to week the remarkable technological progress that's being made because it's a very deep integration of basic scientific advances with very smart systems both that help on the research side, but also help on the deployment side. And not only will the energy transition deliver the kinds of economic benefits in the form of savings, as we were just talking about, it also produces a much more vigorous and vibrant economy with more jobs, right? I mean, those of us who have advocated it for a long time know that when we talk about energy transition, we're really largely talking about infrastructure projects of one kind or another, projects that create good jobs. And that seems more important than ever now, especially with the hit that the economy has taken due to COVID-19 the number of jobs that have been lost, and just the sheer need for massive federal investment here to help pull us out of an economic tailspin. And in that sense, I think the callback to Roosevelt's New Deal is even more apt at this moment than when the so-called Green New Deal was first proposed, don't you think? Many lies have been told about this transformation, or maybe just a deep misunderstanding that we don't know how to do it, that it's impossible, that we'll have to stop driving, and so forth, or that it will bankrupt us. That's a second. But a third one that has been politically potent is that it will lead to mass unemployment. And I commend the fossil fuel industry for (laughs) uh, its ability to propagandize on this point. Typically, uh, look at the number of jobs then they add in all the ancillary jobs that they can 
somehow indirectly linked to this, then they multiply by some input-output coefficient of 10 because any job has upstream and downstream consequences. And they say, oh my God, this is how many jobs we'll lose. But the fact of the matter is that the fossil fuel industry is very capital intensive and doesn't employ very many people. How many coal miners, for example, are there in the United States? So really at the coal face, maybe 15 or 20,000 in the country. That, I remind you, is compared to a labor force of 150 million. It is decimal points of rounding error, actually, in a monthly report. But it was used for a long time as the potent argument. Similarly with fracking, the argument is made, for example, in Pennsylvania, where I've been involved with some of the local politicians talking about the real options for putting people to work in Pennsylvania. The claim was that fracking is the only way to put people to work in Western Pennsylvania. The, the fact of the matter is there are no jobs because fracking is closed down on economic grounds alone, not a failure of uh, promotion, but simply unaffordability. But the truth is that there are going to be millions of jobs in building the new green economy. It is exactly as you said, it's building the new infrastructure. It's building the new transmission. It's building the new power generation. It's building the new hydrogen or other green chemistry solutions. It is building and retrofitting existing buildings for being electric solutions. So one of the things that we'll be emphasizing on the basis of this report is that this is a net job creator that is a significant net job creator at a time when we don't even have the competition of the fossil fuel industry. The fossil fuel industry is massively shedding jobs, not because they didn't try, but because those jobs just can't beat the alternatives now. And I think that this is going to be very compelling in a COVID or we hope soon post-COVID environment where we need to put people back to work rather urgently. And so when we talk about the pathways, we will talk about not only the technology, we'll talk not only about the affordability, but we will absolutely emphasize the net job creation that will come from this transformation. That's one of the things that I think has really maybe been underplayed about the Green New Deal proposals that we've seen put on the table. I, I don't think I've really heard the Congress people that are promoting the Green New Deal talk quite enough about what an incredible jobs benefit could come with it. I think the Green New Deal concept is a great one, and I love the phrase, but the truth is that when the Green New Deal was first proposed, there wasn't really a pathway attached to it. There was a sense of urgency. There was a statement that this is a response to an existential threat. There was a claim that it would create jobs, but there wasn't a plan. And I think it's hard to beat the status quo without a plan. Again, that's why my favorite activity in all of this is pathways. 
pathways that are economically, financially, technologically, and climatologically meaningful and realistic to show, hey, this really works. This is how to do it. So in a way, we're trying to fill in that information right now. We're trying to show this is what a Green New Deal means. It means investments of the following quantitative amounts in the following sectors. This is how much wind, how much solar, how much photovoltaic cells need to be made, how much retrofitting of buildings, what a realistic timeline is, and so on. And then also, we should add here, not only the infrastructure, but of course, the manufacturing base to make the PV cells to manufacture with our homegrown steel industry, the wind turbines and the rest of our industry, that this is something that American companies with American jobs presumably will be doing in the future. And so there's also the supply chains for the electric vehicle sector, a whole new battery industry, which Elon Musk has led in recent years. But we're going to see all of the major auto companies getting into this, I think, understanding that their survival at this point depends on it. Yeah, that's a really good point. So maybe at some point, this modeling work that we've been discussing here can actually be translated into specific job forecasts. It will be in our reporting and in our analysis. We're trying our best. Of course, there are a lot of uncertainties and the tools of the trade, which rely a lot on input-output analysis and so on, are imperfect, but they give us an order of magnitude. They give us a sense of direction. And we will definitely be using the tools that we have as best as we have them to show that in a very practical way, because this is not a theoretical proposition for the distant future, but something that's going to be needed in 2021 to be sure, that people can be put to work in very useful, fruitful, remunerated jobs producing the new green economy. And one of our projects within the U.S. plan is a plan for the Appalachian region and the Midwest, the American heartland. This is the industrial heartland. It's also been the place where fracking and others trying to cling to the old sectors have been saying, this is your only choice, telling people in Pennsylvania, you better take a lot more fracking and a lot more plastics plants and a lot more local pollution because otherwise you won't work. And we're showing with the mayors of Pittsburgh and Louisville and other cities in the Appalachian region, look, there's a lot that can be done with the great universities, Pitt, Carnegie Mellon, University of Louisville and others in technology. There's a lot with the existing industries that can play an important role of building the new sectors and also employing a lot more people than are actually now being laid off by the fracking and fossil fuel sector. 
You know, obviously much of what we can and can't do in terms of energy transition and addressing the challenges of climate change depends on not just the willingness, but also the ability of major governments to make major investments. I mean, again, these are big infrastructure projects here, which again is a particularly difficult thing to do here as the world tries to end and then recover from the pandemic. Now, I've never bought into the idea that a so-called V-shaped recovery was possible for the real economy in this pandemic, although with enough capital injection, it appears the central banks have <laughs> largely pulled that off for the stock market. So what do you think is next for the global economy? Is the world going to be able to find the capital and the will to push forward with addressing the challenges of climate change, along with the many other challenges entwined in that? Or are we going to have to wait for more of a general economic recovery before we can start making these serious national infrastructure investments again? When you have so many people unemployed and so many resources not being utilized, that's exactly the time when there is space in the economy for more investment. So this is a classic environment, except for the difficulty of too much virus still circulating. But the underemployment of resources and the high unemployment rates is the absolute epitome of conditions where we want investment-led growth. We were in a situation something like this in 2009 when President Obama came in. And you'll recall, of course, that we had the stimulus that was voted in early 2009. There was something right about that idea that following the crash of 2008, we needed government-led recovery. But what I did not like at that time was a phrase, shovel-ready investments, that what we were looking for was some short-term things to do, little patch-ups here and there. And I recommended 12 years ago to the new president, to President Obama, take a little bit more time and plan a long-term transformation. I didn't use the word pathway then, that's what I would use now. Take the time so that we're not doing shovel-ready fixes, which maybe in 1933 in the Great Depression when the shovel was more of a, quote, cutting-edge technology than it uh, <laughs> is today, you could use that phrase. But today, we want something more sophisticated, something lasting, something longer term. All of this is to say, around the world, governments are going to be needed using their financial heft to bring resources out of unemployment. And that means that we're actually in a really powerful situation for a public investment-led recovery from COVID. Now, again, let me emphasize that recovery also depends on public health. It's not purely an economic phenomenon. If we don't get testing, tracing, quarantining, physical distancing, face mask use, and so forth, we're not going to have an economic recovery. We're not going to have a social recovery. So when I talk about an economic recovery, it is predicated on some decent public health. Now, I can tell you that around the world, governments are working on this kind of green recovery. Europe is in the lead. It's already adopted a European-wide recovery plan. It's already put hundreds of billions of euros 
behind that recovery plan. It's already committed itself to net zero or climate neutrality by 2050. It's already pooled resources at the center in Brussels at the European Union to mobilize new investments and spending across the European Union region. I'm suggesting in my diplomatic work with the United Nations that in the new U.S. government in China, which also will have an underemployed economy in Korea, Japan, the European Union, and African Union as a group of 54 countries, that we work together on a global, essentially, Green Deal in which each region of the world, in a cooperative way, looking over each other's shoulders, is building towards the net zero safety that the whole world needs and that the whole world needs every other part of the world to be doing. So I think that there's actually the possibility predicated on a change of politics in the United States of getting global cooperation on exactly this approach. You know, in addition to basic economic vigor, it's going to take leadership to move the U.S. down its decarbonization pathways. Fortunately, we have at least the prospect of a Joe Biden administration to consider at this juncture because he is very much in support of action on climate change and would assemble a team that is likewise eager to move forward with energy transition. In July, he announced a plan to spend $2 trillion over four years to advance transportation electrification, invest in energy efficiency upgrades for 4 million buildings, fully decarbonize the grid by 2035, and hit net zero greenhouse gas emissions, I think economy-wide, by 2050. But he's also been criticized by some climate activists as being unwilling to ban fracking, not supportive of a carbon tax, while being supportive of unproven technologies like carbon capture and sequestration and next-generation nuclear power plants. So what do you think we might expect from a Joe Biden administration? I think we'll see great things. The Democratic Party is a coalition of groups that want strong climate action. Joe Biden has made clear in the campaign that climate is an existential issue for the world and for the United States, and he mentions it as one of the fundamental pillars of his incoming administration. This is very, very notable. I think the goals are right. I would, by the way, say to anybody, we ought to be working on carbon capture and storage technologies to see what they can do, how they can help. Certainly, direct air capture of carbon can play a very important role in a green chemistry strategy in which you capture CO2 from the air, you use renewable energy, and outcomes synthetic liquid that can replace petroleum for certain uses or aviation fuel and so on. I think also closing the door on nuclear energy would be a mistake. Of course, it depends on systems. There are many ideas about fourth generation nuclear passive safety systems, different fuel cycles and so forth that deserve our attention. And over the longer term, continued investments in fusion as a second half of the 21st century technology absolutely is merited as well. So I'm not of the view that we close down our options. 
I don't think fracking has any future, by the way. So economically, I personally think it should stop on multiple grounds. But basically, with the fracking industry shutting down on its own and going out of business, our real challenge is getting directed with strong goals and strong pathways for building the new sectors. So I really like what I hear. I like the money behind it. I like the timelines. I personally support the broader range of technologies for our R&D purposes and to make sure that we're using all the options at our disposal. It will help us get to net zero even before 2050 by using a wider range of options if they're good options. So I'm very, very encouraged, and I have no doubt that the overwhelming momentum of a Biden administration will be to put in play exactly the kinds of transformations that we've been talking about. You know, I'm fascinated by the parallels here between the situation that we find ourselves in now and this prospect of a Green New Deal and the situation that we were in almost 100 years ago with the Great Depression and Roosevelt and the Public Works Administration and so on. I wonder if you've thought about that at all, if you thought about those parallels or if we can draw any insights from what we did to get out of the Depression and where we are now. Well, I've thought about that just about every day <laughs> for, <laughs> for months and indeed years. I'm a, trained as a macroeconomist, so it's been about 50 years of trying to understand the lessons of major macroeconomic crises for me and having advised through many crises as well. There are parallels. I think the most important parallel is that Roosevelt was a leader with a great vision, a great heart, and an incredible capacity to appoint excellent people who could get things done. Because when he supported initiatives like Social Security or WPA or other initiatives, they actually worked. In other words, even before having the benefits of computerization or electronics and blah, 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 he actually was able to put in place very large-scale programs. And of course, when it came to World War II to mobilize a whole U.S. economy to be the arsenal of democracy of that war. And the genius of it very often was going with excellent people. And this is part of the lesson of our current travails. Trump is not only pointed in the wrong direction, but he's surrounded by crooks. I mean literal crooks who are getting indicted right and left. He's surrounded by cronies. He's surrounded by lobbyists. He's surrounded by billionaire contributors. These are people who can't do anything except move money in their personal direction. Trump couldn't build his wall. I thought it was an awful idea, but he built no infrastructure because unlike FDR, this is not administration of competence, even the most minimal kind of competence to do something. This is an administration of crooks and cronies, and they're not interested in building, so much less capable of it. So I think the 
real parallel with the Great Depression is is not only the obvious points of high unemployment and so on, but is really the question of making the government function for the common good. And that requires excellence at the top and part of that excellence being the ability to attract excellence into government with the right kinds of people who can really manage. When I was growing up as a kid in the 1960s, I saw at work our government in a different way. My youth was really enriched profoundly by the moonshot. I was basically seven years old when it began with the Mercury Project and I guess 15 years old when Neil Armstrong stepped on the moon. So those were formative years for me. But what we saw there was a remarkable, stunning capacity of the U.S. government to organize an urgent, extraordinarily complex task, bringing 20,000 private companies together for this purpose under the NASA umbrella. About half a million people, our best young engineers of the time, together working on this phenomenal venture. And that's, for me, why it was always so strange to hear, government can't do this, government can't do that. My parents loved FDR. I loved JFK for his boldness of leadership. I saw government work. I studied how government can lead. I've been involved in major government investment projects all over the world. I believe that it's a crucial vehicle for our common good. And what could be more common of our common good than our climate and environment? So I see this is the time for activist government again. The point that was shocking for me in my career came January 20th, 1981, when Ronald Reagan said that government is not the solution to our problems, government is the problem. This was just a wrong diagnosis, a fundamentally wrong diagnosis. I can say looking back 40 years, it put us on a trajectory of doubt, of dismantling government functions, of self-fulfilling prophecies by bringing cronies and lobbyists and crooks into government rather than the competent people. I think what a President Biden and Vice President Harris should do, above all, is bring in people who can lead this transformation effectively, solid management, rigor, honesty, a sense of purpose, a sense of mission, sense of patriotism. That's a terrific way of thinking about it. That's not exactly the answer I expected either. So that's great, <laughs> you know, because because it's so easy to just talk about the programs that FDR put through and the economic stimulus that we got from them, without really just kind of considering the nature of the leadership as a really important characteristic here too. So before you go, you've obviously been studying these sort of historical cycles for a long time and thought about the way that we can sort of draw insights from them. 
You have a new book out titled The Ages of Globalization, in which you detail seven major historical waves of technological and institutional change, which is a fascinating topic. Are there any insights you can share from that work that are relevant here to the project of energy transition? I have been looking back and thinking about the long haul of history and especially how physical geography and nature on the one hand, technology on a second dimension, and our institutions of governance and culture in a third way interact to produce our societies and global change. And the thesis of this new book, The Ages of Globalization, is that since the beginning of modern humans and their migration from Africa around 70,000 years ago, we have been a globalized species. We have been interconnected all over the globe. We've been trading. We've been exchanging technologies. We've been exchanging best practices. All too often, we've been at war with each other also. We've certainly been migrating. And that interconnection is the story of our species. But I emphasize that there have been fundamental technological changes over the ages that have reshaped our lives in basic ways. Of course, agriculture is one fundamental reshaper. I talk about the domestication of the horse, roughly 3,000 to 4,000 BC, as being essentially the invention of the automobile of that age. It fundamentally transformed economies and politics in a very deep way. The ocean navigation, the voyages of discovery, fundamental transformation, the steam engine, a fundamental transformer. It made the reality of the industrial age. And I think we are now at a new age of globalization. I call it the digital age for obvious reasons. That is the driving technology, the ability to compute, store, transmit, process information in this unprecedented manner. This technological wave is as fundamental, in my view, as was the steam engine or electrification. The notion that the world's information is all long strings of zeros and ones was a kind of brilliance of the inventor of the digital age, Alan Turing, of the 1930s, but his vision has been progressively put into place with the computation of John von Neumann, with the transistor, with integrated circuits, with the internet, and so on, that have brought us to this new moment. And I see three fundamental forces at play in this new time. One is geopolitical, which is that these technologies are global. And they have given rise to East Asia as a new center of economic might and innovation power, China, Japan, Korea, and so forth, rivals, competitors, and partners with Europe and the United States. So this is no longer the North Atlantic region or the American century. This is a multipolar world. And other regions will later on join as part of that multipolar world. Big geopolitical changes. Trump wants to essentially go to Cold War with China. I think it's absurd and dangerous. And I very much hope that in the Biden administration will pull back from a lot of the 
huge foreign policy blunders that are underway now. The second big aspect of our age is the one we've been talking about, the environmental catastrophes. We are in the Anthropocene, that is the human-made epoch of the Earth, and all of the dangers as we've been discussing. And the third dimension is the technological, the digital age. And boy, has COVID-19 pushed us in a probably uh, 10 times faster rate to the digital age than we were going already. It's made the giants of our companies. We've gone online for so much of the economy. Mr. Bezos, founder and owner of Amazon, has enjoyed an $80 billion increase of wealth since January 1 of 2020. It's astounding what has happened in terms of digitalization. Now, my view is that these three forces, the geopolitical, the environmental, and the technological, define our new era, and that if we're smart, we put this to use in the right way, not as in other periods of great change that end up in war and disaster, because that also is a feature of transformations or transitions between these ages, but rather peaceful transformation to build a clean, smart, inclusive economy. This is possible. These technologies are wonderful if they're properly deployed. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.